of six hits so far through three. The count is two and two to Shane Victorino. And Victorino hits in the air, deep to right field. Hayward going back. That one is gone. It's his first home run since the eighth of June. One more day left in July, and then we are on to August, which means we're getting closer and closer to the start of college and NFL football, which I know I'm pumped for. How about you, Don? Pretty excited about that. Not so excited about the summer being over, though. Well, that, that's kind of the catch-22 of it yeah, all, right? Yeah, Su- football Summer ends, that. but football comes. Uh, it is Season 2, Episode 29 of the Sportscasters, July 31st, 2012. I'm the host, Steve Bennett, co-host Don Russ. And uh, we got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to do a lot of different things. First, the guest, Jonah Carey from Grantland.com, is going to join us to recap all that has been a somewhat eventful trade deadline day today in Major League Baseball. Some big names out there. A couple big names didn't move that might have. But we're going to talk to Jonah about all things Major League Baseball trade deadline and look ahead to the last two months of the Major League Baseball season. Then the middle interview is a really cool one. Tommy Tomlinson, who spent the last 23 years as a columnist and writer for the Charlotte Observer, has left the newspaper to join a website called Sports on Earth, which is a collaboration between Major League Baseball Productions and USA Today Sports Media Group. And the site is kind of basically... Joe Piznanski's new place to write. Okay. He left SI and this website. It's almost like Bill Simmons is to Grantland. Joe Piznanski is to Sports on Earth. Right. And Tommy Tomlinson is to Sports on Earth as Chuck Klosterman is to Grantland. Maybe like the second big name there. And Tommy's going to join us to talk about the new Sports on Earth website. I've seen a lot of things online where people are saying, we already have Grantland. Why do we need this site? Tommy's going to let us know what the difference between the two is. He's also going, to, also going to address the topic of what the Joe Piznanski controversy is going to mean for this site. Will there be a backlash right. to this new website based on Piznanski's other interests, which we've talked a lot about, and that's his book about Joe Paterno. And our third guest today is Pablo Astori who in last week's edition of Sports Illustrated finished his trilogy of Jeremy Lin stories. This time he shared a byline with our buddy Lee Jenkins, and we're going to talk to Pablo about the Jeremy Lin story, why he ended up in Houston, not New York. We're going to talk about some other things with Pablo. So three really great interviews today. Also, we're going to do five on fantasy. Don and I are going to go over some players in fantasy football who are somewhat close to each other, and we're going to say who we would draft one or the other. For example, Arian Foster is maybe most people's number one running back, but there's a little discrepancy at number two. Is it Ray Rice or LaShawn McCoy? Don and I are going to debate things like that on Five on Fantasy. We're going to update the book club. we got two new books for the month of August, and we're going to say goodbye to our book for July, uh, which was uh, treated us really well this month. And we're going to do pick four. We got some cool kind of Olympic things in pick four. But before we can get to any of that, we have to start the show like we do every week 
with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, Steve said off the top that the Olympics have started, and uh, you'd have to be in a hole not to realize that. But, man, there's just a ton of storylines, as I'm sure there are with every Olympics, but it just seems like more than ever. Uh, NBC's coverage is kind of getting beaten up a little bit. Fairly, do you think? Unfairly? You know, I get it. I really do. I mean... A lot of it probably stems from pressure from advertisers. Yeah, and... You know, I, I kind of like, I kind of like the idea of there's there's nothing out there that you can't really see live if you want to, right? And then at the end of the day, if you'd like to sit down and see some of the bigger events and some of the bigger stories, I kind of like the way sure. NBC packages it. So for me, I, I kind of like the way they do it, and with the tablet, the iPad, and the apps that they've put out for that, which I think are fantastic. You know, I was able to watch Phelps swim the other day in the afternoon on that app. And I know some people have had some trouble with some of that NBC streaming, but I haven't so far. So I don't mind the way the coverage is set up personally. Yeah, I don't I don't think I hate it either. The one criticism I would have of it was, as you probably heard, there was a commercial for a, a female swimmer. I don't know her name off the top of my head. A young girl going for her first gold medal. And they basically set up the spoiler like, before they went to commercial. Uh, right, we'll come back to see it today. If, We'll come back to see if she wins a gold medal. And then one of the commercials during that break was her holding her gold medal, talking about how she'd be on the Today Show Right, the they next spoiled day. themselves. That was a big blunder. Right. Um, other stories. One uh, last thing I, I was just going to say about that is that I think with the internet where it is, we're kind of used to watching stuff. Like anyone who's been a wrestling fan has seen episodes of Raw that – were already taped and that you know the results of and I think spoilers aren't what they used to be you know so I don't know I just feel you like have to I'm expect a, them with, with yeah, anything you do it's, it's almost hard to, to it. not have something spoiled you, really so. have to, you have to go out of your way to not have things spoiled now um maybe the saddest image from the Olympics that we'll have the whole time was uh, the poor South Korean fencer named Shin El Lam who uh was seemingly screwed over by a clock malfunction. She needed only to avoid being touched for the final second of her match. Clock froze. With uh, a German fencer, I believe. And the clock froze, giving her a few extra seconds. Uh, they reviewed it. They basically ruled against her, so she refused to leave the field of play. Because I guess in fencing, and maybe in any sport, in the Olympics, once you leave... It means you've accepted the results. So this girl just sat down. That's kind of the picture you see out there, her just sitting there by herself. Uh, was eventually taken off by Olympic officials. And It's brutal when you think yeah. about how much effort these athletes put into training for these events. She had you to know. go out later that day to compete for the bronze, and she lost. And I mean, who can blame her? I mean, human emotion is going to come into it at that point. Yeah, she just that. Yeah, that's a really rough thing, and you hate to hear of people getting screwed in the Olympics because we know how hard the athletes work to get to this point. Right. 
Michael Phelps today is the most decorated Olympic athlete of all 19 time. Nineteen medals. Nineteen medals, and uh, I think he's got a few more events to go, right? Yeah, he's got at least three more. So we'll talk about that during pick four later. One of his events, right? Uh, his counterpart, Ryan Lochte, a little bit disappointing, I would say. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you thought both of them have had a somewhat disappointing Olympic so far. I mean, Phelps had a gold medal in his grasp today. He kind of coasted the finish where the other swimmer, sh- you know, finished out and out-touched him. Right. Kind of like he had done to someone in the last Olympics. Uh, he finished fourth in an event, didn't medal. He got his first two silver medals this year now. He's won a bronze, losing to Lochte head-to-head. I, you, you I know don't what? know. I like Phelps. Uh, I like them both. Lochte's come off as a little bit maybe arrogant. But I guess you have to be to, from Rochester, born born in Rochester, to do anything individual though. But yeah, I guess you got to have a lot of confidence. But that said, uh, Phelps announced before this Olympics that this would be his last and that he was going to retire. And I just wonder at times if he's just not, not into, quite it. into it. I've uh, felt the same way. Like just his mannerisms and all that. Uh, Lochte, on the other hand, he's. Talked a big game. He's kind of got to back it up and he, a little bit. I think when he beat Phelps in that first race, and that was such a big thing for him to you know finally slay Phelps. Right. I think he's let down a little bit since that. I think he needs to pick it back up. Sure. You know because he still does have another head to head against Phelps and some other races to run. Right. Because I mean, if he wants to be compared to him in the grand scheme of things, he's beating Phelps when in the twilight of Phelps' career here, his right. last Olympics. If he wanted to try to get in the same conversation as Phelps, he's got to be eating everybody this Olympics, and it's just not happening. But it, it, interesting storyline to follow up last Olympics with Phelps and all his medals. And Team USA has done what they haven't done since 1996. The women's gymnastics team has won the team gold. Pretty dominating. Yeah, and the strength of their vault. I was reading actually a long article on Grantland about how the scoring for the vault has changed. And... Team USA has a girl, Maroney, who really, that's the only event she competes in is the vault, but she does it really, really well, and supposedly, like, she's worth YouTubing, like, her vaults because they're so much higher and more powerful than everybody's that the way they score them, uh, they give you, like, a degree of difficulty. Like, it used to be on a scale of 1 to 10. Now it's on 1 to whatever, however difficult the trick is. So even if she does one of these high-difficulty tricks poorly, it ends up scoring better than someone else that does a low-difficulty trick really well. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting article on Grantland. If you want to read a long article all about the vault. And I think a lot of the bigger-profile U.S. teams have done well so far. Basketball won their first game against France. Yeah. Uh, the women's soccer team won all three of their preliminary matches. So I, w- I was looking at the uh, who they played Korea today, right? Yeah, or I can't remember North, or North Korea. They North won Korea. one nothing. Yeah. They won one nothing, and I was looking at the statistics, like the box score of that game. Uh, Hope Solo had one save today in the game, so I don't know if I didn't watch the game. That's or... maybe the other big story of this Olympics we haven't mentioned. That's is right. Hope Solo tweeting some critical comments aimed at Brandy Cre- Chastain, Chastain. I, who I guess kind of innocently just kind of critiqued uh, misplay by a defender. Right, and I I get I think. If Hope Solo's doing that to just kind of pick up her teammate, maybe this, maybe that teammate was down about her play or something. If Hope Solo's doing that to pick up the teammate or to try to distract her and maybe 
put the emphasis on how Brandi Chastain's being unfair, which she wasn't. I mean, if anyone no, had I read heard the, the comment, comments are pretty innocent. Yeah, it's pretty much nothing. Then that's fine. If Hope Solo's really upset about it in real life, then she's got to shift her focus. Like that that's harmless. If that's the stuff that's going to rattle her a little bit, she's going to need to be more focused on that. Before we move on, what have you watched? Like what have you had the most Is there any kind of off the radar sports that you've Come to the TV to see and have enjoyed? I've watched really whatever was live. There's something about watching a live sporting event. Uh, even if I don't know the outcome of a game, it's just better to watch live than it is recorded. I've watched a lot of the soccer, particularly the women's soccer. I've watched a little bit of table tennis and regular tennis. I get into the handball a little bit. I haven't I saw watched very of little of that. Very little handball. I haven't watched any water polo yet. Miss Caster and I watched synchronized diving last night. Yeah. It's really pretty. Just like really. I haven't seen any of the swimming events really live. Um, the one thing I will say is fencing does not translate to TV. That sport is so fast that even that on the replays when they super slow mo it, it's almost still too fast. So that's I give those p- people a lot of credit for watching that. I don't know how the judges see what they see because it's one thing it's with the diving quick. that's been a disappointment for me is I haven't seen a triple Lindy yet. A triple Lindy? Yeah, that's been really disappointing. You I, need to see back to school with Rod- Rodney Dangerfield. I don't think I have. Oh, it's a great '80s movie where <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield goes back to college as like a 50 year old man and. Him and his son are on the diving team, and his famous dive is Triple Indy. I can't believe you need to be – you're taking that movie home tonight. Yeah, my list of guy movies that I haven't seen is pretty embarrassing. That's brutal. All right, is there anything else on the Olympics? No, let's move on. All right, we're moving on to the Major League Baseball trade deadline, which ended a few hours ago. Hour and a half ago now. Hour and a half. Uh, some of the big stories, not necessarily just from today, but Cole Hamels signs a six-year – Extension with the Phillies worth $144 million. Not bad money there at all. Shane Victorino was traded from the Phillies to the Dodgers. Yep. The force of nature, according to Eddie Vedder. Eddie yep. yep. uh, Ryan Dempster is going to Texas. The Texas Rangers. Yep. Uh, what else? Uh, Hunter Pence is a giant. Another Philly moving on there. Um, Yankees got. McGee. Um, Phillies really uh, had a lousy year, and they just sold off some parts. Yeah, the Pirates uh, got Gabby Sanchez from Miami. It's kind of a bench player. But Felix Hernandez was kind of the big name out there that didn't get moved. Cliff Lee didn't get moved. Cliff Lee didn't get moved, although they kind of said that that would be unlikely. But I think what happened, you can kind of see today, is that there, there wasn't that many sellers out there. You can kind of tell by how many players, like, the Cubs moved. Yeah. You know, and Miami moved some players before the deadline. And, you know, moving Hanley Ramirez is maybe one of the biggest names that moved. Who would have thought the Phillies would have been a seller? Yeah, and the Phillies and the selling. would have been doing as well as they are this year. And... So, but remember, with baseball, yes, today was a trade deadline, but there's still time to make trades. The only difference is players have to clear waivers now. Okay. So that's... Today's the last day you can make trades where players don't have to clear waivers. So now if you make a trade, let's say the Mariners decide, you know what, we are going to trade Felix Hernandez. We're going to trade him to the Yankees. Well, before he can be a Yankee, he has to get to the Yankee spot in waivers. I see. So that that is why today's a deadline, but you won't have heard the last of trades in baseball. There will still be more. 
All right, I think we basically covered that. Uh, our first two things, like we said, were kind of tag team because they were important and long. My last thing this week, uh, the WWE needs to get some maybe new writers. Uh, this is bad. I don't know who Abraham – I haven't watched WWE in a while, and I'm not aware of who Abraham Washington is. Apparently he's the manager of Titus O'Neil, and at some point during yesterday's Raw, he made the comment, quote, he's like Kobe Bryant in a hotel in Colorado. He's unstoppable. So the uh, WWE going to the well there for a joke from a rape joke right. about Kobe Bryant from 2003. And look, uh, too soon, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I'm I'm gonna go on the record and say I am anti-rape. Same. But uh, this has been in the news a lot lately with uh, Daniel Tosh making right. a rape joke. That's more of a gray area to me. Comedians have. I feel like a freedom of speech to say what they want. Uh, most comedy is kind of racial, sexual. Uh, it's edgy. It's comedian's job to push push boundaries, right? Stretch limits. That said, they're in a comedy club in a setting where it's not on national TV. They don't have sponsors to protect. I mean, I guess in Tasha's case, he does have sponsors to protect because he is on TV. But. The WWE has to know better. I mean, and the WWE does not need bad PR. I mean, they've had plenty of instances of bad PR, especially to the non-wrestling fan. You know, it's just going to be another case to them of Vince McMahon and the WWE showing poor taste. And what, that's not something they need. And what I saw, kind of the aftermath of this, was WWE was basically saying that they're going to look into probably Abraham Washington and he, unfortunately, I can, I can see a scenario where he gets fired. Right, he's going to go down. He's going to so go down it looks because like they he, did something. Right, he read the line the writers fed him, and he's and, not John Cena. Right, you no. know, he's not Brock Lesnar. He's not Mick Foley. He's not Hulk Hogan. If you know, he's not one of the big big stars of the company. So that means he might have to sit on the bullet here. You know what? <laughs> this is getting into conspiracy theory territory, but I don't know how big the WWE is. Because it's off my radar. I used to be into it. I'm just not anymore. Maybe they have a little bit of slip in the ratings. The Olympics are on and stuff. So they they give somebody a line to read that they know is going to get him in trouble, get them in the press. I get that. But they just had their thousandth episode of Raw last Monday. And it was really big. And it was kind of covered a little bit by you know non-national yeah. media. So I, I see exactly what you're saying. But like I said, it seems I, like I don't... Strange, strange timing for that. Sure. Yeah, WWE, uh, you gotta you gotta know better. Yeah. All right, I have one last story here. My third thing today: the NCAA is at it again. Another scandal, another punishment. This time, Central Florida received a one-year ban and a one-year a one-year bowl ban and a one-year men's basketball tournament ban from the NCAA because of re- recruiting violations in the two programs. The NCAA Committee on Infractions announced this Tuesday, and you can see, find this article by Andy Katz on ESPN.com. It's basically Central Florida. Uh, they were charged with a lack of institutional control, as well as a five-year probation. Uh, it's Central Florida is preparing to join the Big East in 2013 and 14. Uh, they were formerly in Conference USA, so blow for them. And yet another uh, scandal in the NCAA. It just seems like. NCA has turned into the Tour de France, <laughs> where a day can't pass without some kind of scandal being exposed. 
And the NCAA is always there to lay the hammer down, that's for sure. So, hey, Have you read Deadspin lately, speaking of the NCAA? They have a lot of stuff about uh, the Penn State right. scandal, I guess you can call it. And wow, uh, Penn State fans, you've got to be embarrassed. about. Yeah, Penn State fans definitely have that blind blinders up. Cow. I mean, they they even said in the article on, on Deadspin that... Uh, Look, every time we mention uh, a Penn State fan saying something stupid, we get tons of Penn State emails saying that it's a vocal minority, we, we know better, blah, blah, blah. But they they showed on Deadspin, uh, somebody started some sort of online email that he's basically, or a Facebook post that this guy wanted to share. And he's like, so hopefully the right people see it and the NCAA can do the right thing and there's like 70,000 people that like that post. So to say it's a vocal wow. minority is pretty ridiculous. Uh, those those people have to evaluate their lives, basically. They're, you're talking about child rape, and you're worried about Joe Paterno, uh, a dinosaur that couldn't... He did the wrong thing. Right. He fucked God up. did the wrong thing. I mean, go back... Two podcasts and listen to Zach Rosenfield if you really want like an impassioned response to this. But boy, I, they're a total embarrassment. If anybody wants to come on there from Penn State and say that the NCAA is punishing innocent people by doing this, then I can listen to that. But don't talk about how the free report, which was accepted by the school, was faulty or wasn't enough evidence. And just stop it. Turn the page. Build a new legacy there. Because the one you have right now is pretty embarrassing. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for three things this week. Uh, kind of shared some stories there. Obviously, the Olympics taking up most of it. Yeah. Um, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to Jonah Carey, talk about the Major League Baseball trade deadline. And we're going to update the book club, doing an interview with Tommy Tomlinson on the new website, Sports on Earth. We're going to do five on fantasy final interview with Jonah Carey, and then we'll close the show out with pick four. Real real quick, I don't know yeah. if you mentioned the other podcast at all. I have yet to mention it. Okay. If you don't stick stuff. around for any reason till the end of the podcast, where we typically will tell you what's going on over there, we got a real cool guest this week. So if you are if you love like Hard Knocks, we got the director. I've, Rob Gehring is his name. The director of Hard Knocks is going to be on our other podcast over at Football Nation. So that should be up tonight or tomorrow as well yeah, it'll be when up this one Wednesday. is. So. Go out and check it out. It's one of the cooler interviews we've had as far as it's, it's a little bit different. It's not straight sports-related. Uh, it's a different angle, but real cool stuff. Good job. Let's take a break. Come back with uh, Jonah Carey from Grantland.com. Our next guest is from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and is a graduate of the journalism program at Concordia University. He has contributed work for ESPN.com, GQ, the New York Times, and countless other publications. Today he's a staff writer for the popular Grantland website, where he also hosts a podcast during the baseball season. His book, The Extra 2%, focuses on the rise of the Tampa Bay Rays and is a New York Times bestseller. His next book, about his beloved Montreal Expos, is due to be released in the spring of 2014. He's making his fourth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our good buddy, Jonah Carey. What's up, Jonah? Do I get like a smoking jacket or something for being the fourth time guest? 
Uh, I'm not sure what our fourth time prize is. We just uh, were talking to Lee Jenkins about how the next time he's going to be on, it's 10. So we might have to give him diamonds or something. Wow, 10, that's that's pretty good. i got a long way to go. Fred. Yeah. But we really appreciate you squeezing us in today. I know trade deadline day is probably not the slowest day around for baseball writers. Uh, but it's an exciting day for us to have you on because there's so many interesting things to talk about. And I guess the first thing I just want to ask you is kind of, Maybe a little bit plainly, what did you think of how the trade deadline played out today? Was it what you expected? Was it surprising? Or, you know, just the day in general and how it played out, what's your reaction? Well, the apocalyptic moves tend not to happen. A guy like Justin Upton getting traded, you know, that's always going to be a long shot and turn out it didn't happen. But, I mean, we had uh, Zach Greinke before today. That was probably the biggest name to change teams. And today we had guys like Shane Victorino and Hunter Pence and uh, Ryan Dempster. So there were some quality players that did change teams. It was interesting to see who was aggressive. A lot of National League teams being very aggressive, you know, between the Giants and the Dodgers and so forth. I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. The Pirates made a bunch of trades, too, not necessarily any blockbusters, but really moved some talent around and acquired some and tried to make an effort to not only get better this year, but also next. And I think the one thing that really stands out is that the AL East was really quiet. The Orioles had made a lot of noise about Joe Blanton and some other things. That didn't happen. The Rays had made exactly two deadline trades in the last five years, and maybe that's not surprising. The Jays had made a couple of deals earlier, not necessarily marquee deals, but they'd done nothing today. Uh, Yankees picked up Casey McGee for Chad Gualdo was about it. Right. And the Red Sox basically traded a prospect for a prospect. So very, very quiet in a division that's supposed to be the most rough and tumble in baseball, but maybe not necessarily is anymore, at least not this season. Yeah, you know, I thought it was pretty interesting that it seemed like we seen a lot of the same teams trading off the better players. It seemed like the Phillies and the Cubs were two teams that were definitely going to be selling off some parts today. And I wonder if that shows you that there wasn't a lot of sell. Like, did it turn out that there just wasn't a lot of sellers out there? Um, yeah, you could say that. You know, I think it did clarify over the last few days, but we were in a situation where, look, if two wild cards. I think teams are still trying to figure out what two wild cards means, to be honest with you. Not only in terms of what are my odds for making the playoffs, but let's say I make the playoffs as the second wild card. It's a one-game playoff. It's not in my home stadium, so I don't derive any revenue or anything like that. And if I lose, I'm out. I mean, it's nice to make the playoffs, especially if you have a long drought. I mean, if it's a team like the Pirates and they get in after not making the playoffs for 20 years, that's pretty exciting. But there's still you know, not as much upside as you would think, so they've got to figure all that out. And so you get in a situation where teams are torn. You know, on the one hand, they're kind of close, and they're hanging in. They're about 500, but on the other, they don't know what to do because the upside of making the playoffs might not be that big. But sure enough, those 500-ish teams, we didn't see much from the Orioles, you know, or the Red Sox or the Rays, teams like that. Really, the Indians didn't necessarily opt into any big deals, buying or selling. I think they were listening. I think if the Rays could have gotten a blockbuster offer for James Shields, they might have done it. Uh, the Jays were talking about Matt Garza, supposedly, but that kind of fell through. I think it just becomes a matter of they're in the mix, but they're not going to be as motivated to make a big move. In other words, if they don't think it's a perfect deal, they won't do it. That's kind of what you saw from those old pack teams. You know, it seemed like the Angels, with their adding of Greinke, seems like the conversation has turned to, wow, this is a team that we really have to start paying attention to as one of the best teams in baseball. Other than them, is there anyone else that you think got much better today? Someone that – did any team – and obviously we're not going to know for sure for a couple of weeks, but did any team put themselves up a level, maybe closer to being a wild card, or maybe instead of being a wild card, now they're closer to being a division winner? Or 
maybe not a division winner, but closer to being a World Series contender. Did anyone move up at all? Well, I mean, teams moved up incrementally, but don't forget, even if you trade for an MVP candidate today, it's just two months. It's just a third of the season. So the best-case scenario is maybe, maybe you're going to add two or three on the really outside wins to your total for the rest of the season. So if you're a few games out of the race and you pick up you know, even a really good player, that's not necessarily going to be enough. It's more like for teams that are in a dogfight. The Dodgers and the Giants, it makes perfect sense for them to be aggressive because they're literally tied for first place. So, you know, all win. If you pick up one win, that could be the win that gets you to the playoffs, you know, in that kind of situation. So that's where we're at. I think the teams that are going to benefit the most are the ones that were in the closest races. You know, someone like Texas, for instance, uh, they pick up Dempster. That helps certainly because Royals both went to the bullpen and Neftali Feliz just had Tommy John surgery. All those things are in play. But Texas was probably going to make the playoffs no matter what. So to make an impact trade, and I would argue that Dempster, they didn't give up any marquee prospects. So it wasn't a quite an impact trade. But if they were going to go ahead and be more aggressive, you know, had they gone after a Josh Johnson or a Shields or whatever, the utility of that kind of trade is less because they're in position anyway. They're going to be playing in October. So I like the idea that the teams that made the biggest run at it were teams like the Dodgers and the Giants. I think you could put the Angels in that same category. They were already a very good club in terms of personnel, but certainly in a dogfight, not only well behind Texas for the division lead, but fighting so many teams for the wild card between Oakland and Baltimore and the Rays and the Red Sox and what have you. So it made sense for those kinds of teams to make the biggest moves, and in fact those were the ones that made the biggest moves. Dumpster is really interesting because it seemed early in the process that the Cubs had to deal with the Braves, but Dumpster blocked that with his 10-5 rights. And then it seemed like the Braves maybe wanted Greinke. They didn't get him too Maybe two parts to the question. One, what did you think about how the Braves ended up despite not getting Dempster and Granke? And then two, what do you think about Dempster, him ultimately not getting to the Dodgers but getting to the Rangers? Is he going to be ultimately happier with that than he would have been Atlanta? Uh, what was the first team that you said didn't get Granke? What were my thoughts? I missed that. Oh, I was just saying that when the Braves lost out on Dempster, there were some rumblings that maybe they'd go for Granke, but that didn't right. work out either. Well, the Braves did get Paul Mahomes, who's under, he's not Granky, but he's an underrated pitcher. He's had a great stretch. I think it's something like seven straight starts with one run allowed or less. And he's going to help in the, in the same trade. They also picked up Reed Johnson, who's a nice bat against lefties. You know, what it comes down to, again, you've got to go back and look at the, the, just the totals here. Maybe Granky gives you two wins over the rest of the season and Mahomes gives you one. It's not a huge difference. The bigger difference comes in the playoffs. Now, if the Angels make the playoffs, and what's their rotation going to be? It's going to be Weaver and Greinke and Wilson, and maybe Dan Heron is their fourth starter. That's devastating. That's either the best in baseball or maybe the second best behind the Nationals. So from the Braves' standpoint, they're trying to make the playoffs here, and I think they're in a good position to do that. And Mahalem helps. As for who's going to be number one, number two, number three starter, yeah, it would have been great if they could get Greinke, but I think their priority right now is just let's see if we can get in. Uh, as for the second one with Dempster, yeah, you know, I think the Dodgers, Ultimately, what I'm hearing is that the asking price was too high. Alan Webster was supposedly the guy that the Cubs wanted, very talented young pitcher, and the Dodgers just didn't want to do that. He was Dempster's a rental player. They didn't feel that he had any you know sustainable value. They didn't know if they were going to resign him. He's 35 years old. He's a good pitcher, but I don't know if he's this good. This is the best season he's had in his whole career. And they just decided we don't want to give up a, a crucial part of our future for a guy like Dempster. I mean, even in the uh, Hanley Ramirez trade. They didn't give up anybody that good. And you can argue that Hanley Ramirez has a lot more value than Dempster because he can be a keeper. So I think that for the Dodgers' standpoint, you know, they made additions. They got Hanley. They upgraded their bullpen. They did a couple other things. But when push came to shove and they had to give up a true marquee prospect, 
to get a guy. They didn't do that, and I kind of like that. I think they're still in a good position to make the playoffs, but they didn't overdo it. You know, I wanted to ask you about Hanley Ramirez because there's been a lot, I've noticed a lot of backlash against the Marlins on Twitter. You know, the Marlins playing their first year in this mostly publicly funded, beautiful new stadium and, you know, already selling off parts. What was your reaction to when you first heard that uh, Miami had traded Hanley Ramirez? And what do you think about that team in the long term? Well, you know, there is that whole argument and disconnect about, well, gee, if you got all that money from taxpayers, you owe it to your fans to try to do X, Y, Z. But it's not a good team. I mean, I think that the fans would also want to teach it a winning ball club. And if they weren't going to win with this nucleus, then maybe they had to break that up a little bit. And there are issues with Hanley Ramirez that go beyond his home runs in RBI and have to do with how well he got along with people and did management like him and blah, blah, blah. So I can understand that to some extent. Annabelle Sanchez was a free agent after that this year. That makes sense. Omar Infante was actually signed cheap, but only for one more season. Not like they gave up these monster keepers. They didn't trade Giancarlo Stanton. They didn't give up on the Jose Reyes experiment after four months. You know, these these are good players, these guys that went, but it's not necessarily a massive gamble on the part of the Marlins. I don't view it as a fire sale by any means. I think it's retooling, you know, cashing in guys that were about to leave anyway and moving on. So, you know, the, the bitter part of me could say, well, gee, I mean, well, I'm a Marlins fan. How could you do that? I gave you my money. This is what you did. But from a rational point of view, a lot of these deals made sense. That today is the last day you can trade without having to worry about players passing through waivers, but there still is time to trade for players with the waivers part added in. Do you expect to see more moves in the next coming weeks, or do you think most teams are what they will be for the rest of the season? Oh, absolutely. There are always moves in August. A player basically has to pass through waivers and then he becomes eligible to be traded. And, you know, there's the whole thing about some teams will block other teams. It used to be the Yankees and the Red Sox famously would do that to each other. Whoever was in second place would claim someone. And, you know, this has happened before. Uh, but I, I do think deals will go down. There are going to be players that are, uh, you know, the teams are motivated to move them, quite frankly. There's, you know, various veteran relief pitchers on teams that are out of contention. They do no good to the you know, Astros. I guess the Astros have traded everybody. So the Royals of the league and so forth. And so those kinds of players might get traded. And maybe some bigger names. You know, I wouldn't be absolutely shocked if Joe Blanton made it through waivers and was traded to somebody. I could see that happening. A guy with a bigger contract, certainly. Alfonso Soriano is not going to get claimed by anybody. Because if someone claims him and then the team doesn't decide to pull him back, boom, you're stuck with $40 million of Alfonso right. Soriano. So I, I think you'll see some deals here or there, uh, and maybe even some significant ones. I don't think we're done yet. You know, basically if you look, everyone's played about 100 games now, and there's about 60 games left in the season. What kind of things are you going to be interested in here in the next couple of months? What races are you most interested in following? Which teams who are maybe playing above expectations are you most interested to see if they can close it out? What are the things that Jonah Carey is going to be watching in the last two months of baseball here? Well, the closest races certainly. I think the NL West is very compelling with the Dodgers and the Giants. I picked the Diamondbacks at the beginning of the season. They're only three and a half games out at this point. They've been winning some games. I think they would have liked to have added a starting pitcher. Maybe they still do that with a waiver trade. But I look at that lineup, it's still pretty strong, especially if Justin Upton starts hitting, assuming that he's finally healthy. Uh, Jason Kubel's been a great find. I was wrong about that. I thought that would be not a great offseason finding. In fact, it was. Bullpen's still pretty strong. So that's a good good race right there. Nationals to Braves, I think, could be interesting. I I like the Braves a lot. They're very well positioned. Uh, The Mahalam and Reed Johnson acquisition was a nice little subtle one that they made under the radar. They have a good club. Chipper's still hitting. I I think there's some good things going on there. 
Uh, you know, the American League, it's not as compelling with the division races, quite frankly. The Yankees and the Rangers, I'm pretty sure, are going to win those divisions. Tigers and White Sox, it's close. But something's telling me that the Tigers are just going to run over the White Sox sometime soon. I don't know that the White Sox are as well-positioned as you might think. Chris Sale is having a dead-arm period, which you could kind of see coming from a mile away, considering that he was a relief pitcher last year. I just don't love that roster. Euclid helps. Maybe Liriano helps, but I still like Detroit there. So in the American League, I would have to say that it's a wild-card situation. You know, If you want to point to one team I'm watching, it's Oakland, because nobody picked Oakland at the beginning of the year. And if the playoffs were to start today, they'd be in the playoffs. And, and I think that they've got a pretty good shot. Picked up a catcher at the deadline. They've got pitching depth. Uh, Reddick and Cespedes are really hitting. Very compelling story right now in Oakland. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because with your book, The Extra 2%, the natural thing to do is to kind of compare it to Moneyball. And thus, uh, whenever I, I'm, I'm thinking about you, or if I look at your Twitter, I notice people are still always asking you questions about the Rays. And I, you, you seem to always enthusiastically answer them. And the Rays are three games behind Oakland, a couple teams in between them, though, for one of those two playoff spots. I didn't know that this was going to be a year that the A's would be in the wild card, and I think that's true of a lot of teams, or a lot of people out there are really surprised by the A's. But what about Tampa Bay and Oakland and their chances kind of going forward here for the wild cards? Well, I mean, I think Oakland's chances are legitimate. I mentioned the pitching depth. Uh, they've got a kid named Straley in AAA who's just killing it. He has great stats, and they could get Brendan McCarthy back potentially and uh, some other injured pitchers, Brett Anderson and Dallas Braden. Really just a, a lot of depth and a lot of quality there. So I think they're in good shape. Even if some things go wrong, they can still overcome that. Tampa Bay's in a tougher spot. Their offense is terrible, and a lot of that has to do with Evan Longoria being injured. Certainly he's been out for most of the season, but it's more than that. Everybody in that lineup except for – what, Matt Joyce and Ben Zobrist have underperformed big time. I mean, Desmond Jennings has been terrible. Upton's been a disappointment. And Pena and Luke Scott and, you know, on and on down the list. of This team that was supposed to be built to win, that, you know, spent a little bit of money in the offseason to get Pena and Scott and they had all the pitching coming back. Big disappointment. You know, a guy like Fernando Rodney has exceeded expectations. Maybe Jeff Keppinger has exceeded expectations. That's it. The other 23 guys are either static or they've been much worse than expected. And so... You know, that's always a funny situation because you never know when guys are going to play to their true talent. Carlos Pena doesn't need to hit 400 down the stretch. He just needs to be a 250 hitter with power, which is what they thought they would get from him. Same thing with Desmond Jennings. They don't need him to be a triple crown winner, but they thought he was a dynamic player with power and speed who would help that lineup. So if those guys got going, I think that things could and maybe would change in a hurry, but we're kind of running out of time here. The three games behind the second wild card spot, the AL East is probably out of reach at this point. And Longoria is really struggling with his rehab. He just played that the other day, and now he's got to hit at least a couple of games after playing one game. That's not encouraging if you're trying to get your best player back. All right. The sportscasters are here with Jonah Carey from Grantland.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Jonah Carey. Just two more things, and we'll let you go. Uh, it was interesting because we we're all really anticipating, especially in the off season, watching to see if. Uh, Bryce Harper would make the Nationals, and he didn't initially kind of struggle in Triple A, and then they brought him up, and he's definitely had his moments. But the real unbelievable rookie who I've had, been having so much fun watching is, is Mike Trout. What do you think about Trout and Harper and those two guys potentially leading their separate leagues into the next you know, 10 or 12 years of, of, of baseball? Yeah, they're great players at a very young age. It's very unusual, especially Trout's stats, to be that good at age 20 you got to go to a Gooden and a Renee Rod or a Griffey, Malhot back in the day, guys like that. I mean, just all-time outliers who've been great right off the bat. I don't want to go too far into it. 
because I'm writing a story about Trout's rookie season that's going to be on okay. in a couple awesome. weeks. Awesome. Involves a lot of research and all that. Um, but, you know, definitely looking great, both of those guys. You know, Harper's not performing the same way Trout is, but that doesn't mean I think Trout is a better player. For one thing, Harper's got a year on him, which actually does help if you're talking about projecting future superstars. And for another thing, I think Trout, just everything has gone right for Trout. He's seen 350, the power and speed and defense. I'm not saying those things are not legitimate. I'm just saying he hasn't had any adversity. Just, you know, dinging his knee a little bit the other day. That's the first thing that's even remotely gone wrong. Whereas Harper has struggled with the usual ins and outs of anything being a veteran major leaguer, let alone being a rookie. So I think that you should expect Harper to get better. And I don't know that Trout is going to sustain this level of performance, but absolutely big fan of both, uh, not just for the, for, their performance and their stats, but I like the way they play too. They're fun to watch. Just curious, did you did you happen to see the new documentary about the kids from the Dominican Republic? That's like it's available. No, I haven't seen it yet. Oh yeah, you got to check that out. It's really cool. Uh, Zach Rosenfield, formerly of uh, AccuScore, he's now like working PR, and we keep in contact with him. And he was working on the film, and I got it from iTunes, and it was a really it was really interesting. Maybe next time we'll have you on, you'll have seen it, and we can talk about it more. But I definitely recommend checking it out. And then the very last thing, I, I just always like to keep updated. How's the Expo's book coming? Oh, it's coming along well. Uh, did some recent interviews. Rusty Staub, I talked to recently. Jim Fanning, who was a manager in the in the 81 season when they their only playoff appearance. He's in his 80s, but doing great. He's a kind of a special assistant to the Jays we talked at length. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to do the interviews. The writing part is going to be pretty strenuous and long and all that stuff, but just, you know, talking to these guys is my favorite part of it by far. And, uh, yeah, it's a year and a half away, but it feels closer. These book deadlines, editors tend to want to see stuff, you know, a year or maybe even more in advance. So we're going to have to start punching up some chapters here pretty soon. Awesome. Jonah, thank you so much for fitting us in today. Again, you can find Jonah on Twitter at Jonah Carey. And uh, you can find his work on Grantland.com. Thank you very much for, for stopping by today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, we have to thank Jonah Carey for being on the podcast today. Huge thank you to him just because it's a busy day for him with the trade deadline and being the main baseball writer at Grantland.com. just want to thank him for fitness in on a busy day. Book club update. Uh, July is over today. So just one last time, I want to mention another successful month for the book club. We picked out a book, we were able to read it, and we had the author on to talk about it. And that's what we hope for with each month in the book club, that we don't spend a month plugging a book and then having the author ditch us like the month we did The Captain by Ian (laughs) O'Connor. You know, he's still the only guy who ever committed to being a part of the book club and then blew us off and it was time for the interview. Uh, so a special thank you to Jack McCollum, Hall of Fame, NBA writer, and his book is Dream Team, How Michael, Magic, Larry Charles, and the Greatest Team of All Time Conquered the World and Changed the Game of Basketball Forever. I finished the book last week, and I got to say I give it a strong B+. I really, really enjoyed it. And it's funny, I've read two basketball books this year, basketball probably being my least favorite sport, and I love both of the books, the other being Gene Wojciechowski's book about the Duke Kentucky game that Christian Leitner won with that last second field goal. I think the book was called The Last Great Game. Uh, but both of those books were really fantastic, and McCollum wrote a great book with all kinds of really interesting stuff about the people from the Dream Team. I want to thank him for being on our show. Uh, we got two books picked out for August, and it'll be interesting to see how it goes. The first book is obviously Paterno 
by Joe Posnanski. The book's scheduled to come out on August 21st, 2012. The book is in embargo right now, so we don't have a copy of it. Normally, we would have a copy by now right. of a book that's coming out in, what, three weeks. Uh, but we don't have that luxury this time because the book's in embargo. And also with this book, I had... I originally had a, co- a confirmation from the publisher that Joe would be on right, right. to talk about it, but I haven't had a confirmation with them since they announced that they'd be scaling back on media. I got My gut tells me that scaling back on media would normally mean the sportscasters gets cut. <laughs> but you never know, and I'm holding out hope, and I've been really kind. And maybe our next guest, Tommy, Tom- Tommy Tomlinson, will like us enough to put in a good word with Mr. Poznanski. But... Because of those circumstances, we had to come up with a backup book. I went to uh, Barnes & Noble the other day to look for some ideas, and I found a book called Super Bowl Monday, which was about Super Bowl Twenty Five, the Bills and Giants Super Bowl that ended with Scott Norwood Ooh. missing that field goal. And I thought, oh, this would be really cool. I came home, I researched the author, a guy named Adam Lazarus, and found out he has a book coming out this month called The Best of Rivals. Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. So I hooked up with Adam, and he's really pumped to be a part of the Book Club Book of the Month this month. And he's going to join us sometime this month. Unfortunately, his book doesn't come out till August 28th. So basically, you got a couple weeks off from reading. <laughs> uh, I already have a copy of Best of Rivals, which I'm reading and enjoying. So far, I have gotten through the first couple chapters, which have surrounded around Joe Montana. And I've learned a lot about some of the struggles that Montana went through with his back and the injury he suffered in the 1986 season. But uh, So two books this month. One comes out the 21st. One comes out the 28th. Not ideal. But hopefully we'll get – I know Adam will be on the show and hopefully Poznanski will be on as well. But again, it's summer, so not probably a lot of you wanting to grab a book and sit around and read the whole month of August anyway. So it kind of works out. But the books are Paterno by Joe Poznanski. Comes out on 8-21-12. And Best of Rivals. Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy by Adam Lazarus. Comes out 8-21-12. In the meantime, if you do want to read Super Bowl Monday by Adam, that's available now. Right. All right. Thanks again to Jack McCollum for being a part of the book club this month. We'll take a break. And we'll be back with Tommy Tomlinson from the new website, Sports on Earth. Our next guest is from Brunswick, Georgia, and is a graduate of the University of Georgia. He spent 23 years as a reporter and columnist for the Charlotte Observer. He has been named the best local columnist in America by The Week magazine, and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2005. He recently signed on with USA Today Sports Media Group and MLB Advanced Media to be a part of the Sports on Earth website that will also feature the writing of Joe Piznanski. His article on Tumors Oaks was recently selected by Michael Wilbon to be a part of the upcoming Best American Sports Writing Anthology. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Tommy Tomlinson. How are you doing today, Tommy? I'm doing great, Steve, and thanks for... Uh Lock it in the UGA song there. That's uh, you make me feel at home. How's UGA looking this season? You know, I, I think they're going to be pretty good. They're they're always pretty good. The problem is they're they're rarely as good as Alabama and LSU and you know even the last couple of years South Carolina. 
So, you know, I, I would, I would love for them to break through and have this the year. And, and they, they got a pretty good team and they are, have kind of a lucky schedule in that they don't have to play Alabama or LSU this year. But, um, you know, uh, I can't see them winning the whole thing, but it would be a great surprise if they did. You know, we're going to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I'll, we'll start with this anyway. You're a big college. Right. You're a big college football guy, and I just wonder sure. wh- how you feel about the recent changes to the way the sport is going to declare its national champion. Well, I think a playoff is great. I, I've gone back and forth in my head over the years over whether it should be a 14 or an 18 playoff, and I think the way you have to think about it is this: is in a given year, um, are we going to feel bad? about the team that finishes number five, or are we going to feel bad about the team that finishes number nine? And I have to say, in most years, I don't feel like the number six, seven, eight teams, uh, they rarely have a strong claim to win the title. And in football, because the season is so short, you know, the difference between a three-game extra season, postseason, and a two-game postseason is a pretty big deal. But I have to say I'm pretty happy with four teams. I think in most years you're you're not gonna be able to say that somebody truly got, you know, screwed out the chance to be a champion that was a championship team. Um eight teams would probably be more fun, would be a little better, but logistically and and just in terms of kind of wear it down the players, it's probably a little more difficult. So I'm happy with four and I and I'm thrilled that there's going to be a playoff of some kind because those games are going to be awesome. You know, a lot of people think that it's just the beginning, that they're going to start with the four teams and work their way through the contract that they signed and that there could be more playoff expansion in the future. Do you agree or disagree with that? Well, you know, I think that money is going to be hard to turn down. You know, I think uh, obviously immediately it became it's become pretty clear that – Networks are going to pay a lot of money for these games. And if they're paying a lot of money for a 14, they're probably going to pay more for an 18 or a 16 or whatever, whatever it ends up being. So I think that temptation is going to be pretty hard to resist. Um, I, I hope that for a while we can all just agree to be happy with the 14 playoffs just to see what it's like. Because I think obviously every once in a while, there's going to be a team at number five or number six that's going to have some fairly strong claim to be in the mix. But I think most years, I feel like people are going to end up being fairly satisfied with who the champion is. And, and unlike, you know, in these other years, where an undefeated team that finishes number three or number four uh, is going to get pushed out of the mix, they're going to be in it this time. And we'll probably get to see if... Uh, maybe a Boise State or a TCU or a team like that that finishes a defeated in the regular season. You know, we'll see how they do it in the end. And I think that'll be really exciting. You know, the start of the college football season is it's just about a month away, almost exactly a month away. And I wonder, as we head into the season, who are some of the teams that you've kind of identified as uh, potential favorites to play in, what, the last or second-to-last BCS championship game we got in well, January. Yeah, I think if you um you know, kind of the consensus among, you know, all the kind of pundits and stuff, 
um, LSU and Alabama are going to be good as long as Saban and Les Miles are there. Um, and I think people are giving LSU a little bit of an edge this year because they will have, it appears to be, a decent quarterback this year, which they didn't really have last year. And Alabama may be back down just a little bit because they lost so many good players to the draft. Um, the other teams, LSU, I mean, um, USC, people are talking about, I think everybody thinks, or many people think, USD's starting lineup may be the best in the country. There's a little worry about depth there because of the number of scholarships they've lost. Um, Oregon's going to be really good again. And so I think those four are teams that people are are talking about a lot. Um, you know, a couple that I think are interesting, kind of on the fringes, one in particular um, is Arkansas. I'm going to be going mm-hmm. to Arkansas later on this week to report a story uh, for Sports on Earth about them. Um, the whole Bobby Petrino thing, uh, that's what people, you know, what drew people's attention over the last eight or ten months. But they have a really good team coming back. You know, Tyler Wilson's probably a, maybe a first-round draft pick at quarterback. Now Davis, who was a really good running back two years ago at a knee injury last year, is back. Their defense should be better. Um, and their schedule breaks as well as it can for them in that they're playing Alabama and LSU now. And so if, Alabama, if Arkansas was ever going to do something, this seems like it would be the year. But this whole crazy Petrino stuff has thrown them into sort of a weird mode. And John L. Smith, um, who's a new coach, is a fascinating guy. Um, you know, he's one of those guys who rolled the ball with Petlona and on Mount Kilimanjaro and all that stuff. It, it seems to be a really weird kind of soap opera situation there um, with a team that potentially could be really good. So I would not be stunned. I think their third game is against Alabama at home. If they win that game, I would not be stunned if they, you know, made it to the national championship. A couple more things about college football, and then I'm excited to learn a bunch about sports on earth. But I wanted to just get your opinion. Obviously, the big story last couple of weeks in college football has been the kind of resolution of the scandal at Penn State. Regardless of opinions on Joe Paterno or whatever, that really doesn't matter. What I'm curious is how you felt the NCAA's punishment of Penn State was. Did you think it was fair? Did you think it was too much? Did you think it was not enough, maybe? Well, I think as punishment, it was probably fair, you know, in terms of what happened to them. They obviously had to pay a price, and they'll continue to pay a price for the, the things that happened there sort of under the university's watch. Now, what I don't know, and I have to admit here that I'm not as familiar with sort of the, the role of the NCAA versus the role of what the cops should be in the courts and that sort of thing. What I'm not as, as sure of is whether that should have been the NCAA to impose that penalty. Um, I think it, it possibly was a, a chance for the NCAA to step up and say, you know, we're going to punish schools that do wrong. And certainly Penn State appears agreed to all this um, under the threat of, I think, maybe getting death penalty. But I, I just don't know whether the things that happened there are sort of under the NCAA's um, 
you know, under their authority. Whether that's more a case for the police, uh, criminal courts, civil courts to deal with. I think this would be an interesting case study um, as the years go on to see whether the NCAA recipients balance card. And I think what it certainly did to me is sort of recalibrate what the NCAA believes it has the authority to do and whether that's going to mean uh, uh, worse things for universities that get in trouble down the road uh, or whether some other university may challenge that authority down the road. I think that's a, a pretty interesting question. This is a staple, a sportscaster staple question here because I'm always fascinated to hear the answer. And as we're approaching the college football season, I wonder, through the eyes of Tommy Tomlinson, what are some of the things that you're going to be interested in the beginning of the season to learn or see play out? What are some of the stories that you're going to specifically want to follow as we begin the, the college football season? Well, I think, you know, in fact, I'm, I'm starting to put together sort of a top ten you know, issues in the upcoming season that I'm going to write about. It's, it's going to run, you know, just before the season starts in a couple of weeks. You know, two or three things right off the top of my head. I, I think that, you know, the the big game is opening weekend is Alabama versus Michigan. And I think in some ways that game is kind of a test to see whether anybody can really stand up to the SEC this year. You know, the SEC has won the last six titles. They're clearly feeling their oats, you know, as, as the top conference in the country and this game you know i don't know if people think michigan is a top tier team this year i've seen them in the top 10 in some preseason polls if michigan gives alabama a lot of trouble or if michigan wins that game um that can really kind of reset people thinking on whether down the road there could be a really serious challenge from sec in the national title hunt this year um, if Alabama crushes Michigan, then I think that will sort of deflate a lot of that. You know, it's a, it's a long speed and a lot of stuff right. can change. But I'm talking about kind of perceptions at the beginning. You know, a couple other things I'm looking at. I'm looking at Arkansas story and see how they do. I'm fascinated by Ohio State, you know, the, the idea of, of Urban Meyer being there. And, and to me, it's sort of, I tend to think of these things as sort of something versus something like these two forces colliding with each other. And Ohio State, I think it's kind of Urban Meyer versus Urban Meyer. You know, the, the person that he wants to be, or a city wants to be, which is somebody who doesn't take this, you know, quite so hard and doesn't grind himself into dust like he did in Florida trying to coach football, versus the kind of guy who wants to win at a big-time Division One program and can win at Ohio State. You know, what is that going to you know, is he going to be able to, you know, pull back at the best he needs, you know, get a little bit of perspective on that, or is he just not built on it? You know, those are a couple of things that I think are, are really interesting. I think, you know, who kind of wins the West in terms of, you know, USC and Oregon is really interesting. And I think Boise, to me, is sort of eternally fascinating to sort of, you know, conference hopping to try to find a place where somebody's it's going to take them seriously right. and, 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 you know, believe in them, basically trying to find enough games that they can win where people will believe in them and they can get into a playoff. I think those things are all, you know, sort of fascinating. Like beyond just the normal, you know, like 
how's Notre Dame going to be in the coming spot? Right. Sportscasters are here with Tommy Tomlinson, who you can find on Twitter very easily by just uh, looking at Tommy Tomlinson. Uh, I'm really excited to find out a little bit more about this new project between USA Today Sports Media Group and Major League Baseball Advanced Media, which is the Sports on Earth website. Could you give us a little bit right. of background, kind of how USA Today and Major League Baseball, who, you know, it's how did they come together to kind of create this? What's kind of the background behind the website, as much as you can are free to tell? Well, I'm, I'm free to tell everything. There's just there's some parts I don't know. I, I, I actually have no idea how these two groups first got together. I don't know. It was, you know, two people having drinks at a bar and throwing around ideas <laughs> or what. But, but I do know that, you know, USA Today, sports media uh, group, which is, their big kind of sports arm and MLB advanced media, which does the, the digital stuff for major league baseball, but not just for major league baseball. They do like Elton John's website. and They're kind of the leader in, in video streaming on the web and, and that sort of thing. They got together and pulled some money and decided they wanted to start some sports projects. And this is the first one they started. Um, the guy they hired to pull this together is a guy named Steve Madden, he had been an editor at Sports Illustrated years ago, and most recently um, been at Bicycle Magazine, running that uh, shop there. And they basically hired him and asked him to put together a staff. The first writer he looked at was Joe Bosnett. Um Joe and I have been friends for 20-something years now. We started out together at the Charlotte Observer in a bureau office. And so we've been friends since we were in our 20s. And... Um, and so once they hired Joe as sort of the lead writer and sort of the face of, of this new thing, they asked Joe um, if he recommended people or had people that, you know, that, we, that they should talk to. And I was one of the people that he recommended. And so they called me in the spring and, you know, they looked at my clips and we talked to them and um, went up to New York to interview. And I have to tell you, it was a tough decision for me because I've been at the Observer 23 years and have been a columnist there for the last 15 years. It's a fabulous job. The best job you can have in the newspaper, in my opinion. And I sort of built a following in Charlotte. Um, and, and it was hard to give them up on that. Um, I thought about it in terms of um, I've always wondered what it would be like to be part of something from the ground up. I'd never been that before. And I always wondered what it would be like. Uh, I, I thought about being 75 years old, sitting in the rocking chair, and I'm wondering if I should have done that. Right. And, and so those are the things that ultimately led me to, to accept the offer and come join Sports on Earth. Um, we're, we're still building a staff. We have five full-time writers now, I think, today, that are on board. Joe and I, um, Gwen Knapp, I'm a columnist in San Francisco, um, Sean Powell, who's a great NBA writer, most recently with NBA.com, and Mike Kanger is the uh, football outsiders that work for the work NFL stuff for the New York Times. Uh, those are the five that they have on staff now. Um, I think we're probably going to have at least one more full-timer uh, coming in. And then we have some uh, sort of correspondents, uh, stringers, people like that. Um, I think the most prominent now is Will Leach, the guy who's right. going to write for us. And so, you know, um, a 
think the idea behind it, and other people can, my bosses can probably speak to this a lot better than me. The other, the other uh, main editor they brought in, we've, we've hired also two or three other editors. Um, the main editor there is Larry Burke, who was um, one of the big guys at uh, sportsillustrated.com. And I think the idea is um, to bring in three to five pieces every day that are sort of off the news um, and giving people, you know, a, a take of some kind what happened the day before, but also a couple of features maybe and a longer stuff. The idea being that to kind of cut through the clock, you know, there's a lot of great sports writing on the web and and, and like in print, but to gather it up and find it and to, to read it all is sometimes kind of a, a daunting task. And my idea, or, or Sports on Earth's idea, their idea, is to bring in three or four really good pieces every day. And for some people, let that be kind of their sports menu for the day. And if they want to read about the box score or kind of the game story, you know, we're not going to be doing that. Right. But we're, but we're going to be doing, you know, sort of columns and features that'll be in sort of a, a you know, fairly small package every day. And we hope, you know, it's going to center around good writing good stuff. I don't know if that maybe there's an alien in my house or what, but uh, can you hear my dog? I can hear your dog pretty clearly. He's being, I was worried briefly that it was my dog, but it's You know whose dog is always on the show is Jane Levy's. Every time we have Jane Levy on, her dog likes to be heard. Apparently my dog, I don't know what his problem is. His name is Colston. He's been named after Marquise Colston. But I don't I don't know what his what his deal is right now, but the listeners are I guess getting a treat that Colson's on the podcast today. <laughs> I, I hope that wasn't commentary on what I was saying. <laughs> yeah. Um moving on, but uh, sport it's fascinating the site, you know, I, I was kinda looking around for maybe initial reaction that people might have had since you guys kinda had a soft launch around yeah. some articles focusing on Joe's coverage at the Olympics, and you had a thing about New York City, which was really cool on there. And oh, one thing I kind of seen a couple times was this people wanting to compare you to Grantland. You know, sure. is this just going to be another Grantland? How will Sports on Earth be different from Grantland? Well, I think that's a natural comparison, and I think we will be closer to Grantland than we are to anything else that's out there. Um, I think the, the, the couple of differences that, um, that I, I think two places where we're definitely going to be different. One is we're going to do almost zero of the kind of pop culture stuff that's on ground. You know, um, Joe and I have both written about things besides sports over the years, and we probably will do that a little bit, but there's going to be not much of that at all in sports on earth. I mean, it's going to be about sports. And so, um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing is that we will probably end up going to more events. You know, um, I know, I've noticed Grant when they've done more stuff. They have this, like this great guy, Brian Phillips, who just wrote from Wimbledon has been writing some stuff about the Olympics lately. He's fabulous. I love his stuff. And he's been going some stuff. And I, I saw that Bill Simmons is now at the Olympic. But I think by and large, they are, are maybe not going to as many of them as we expect to go to. Um, we will not be writing sort of game stories of those events. I think that we're 
will be hopefully using those games to sort of get at larger picture stories. But I think, you know, we're going to be at the NBA Finals in the World Series and the Super Bowl and U.S. Open and, you know, Wimbledon and the Masters. We're going to be in that stuff every year. You know, I'm going to be at the, for sure, the Alabama-Michigan game and probably several of the big college football games this year at the championship game. And so I think there'll be, I hope, some stuff that's kind of grounded in on the scene reporting there. Um, you know, I think one thing that sports writing in general doesn't do as well as it can is tell people what it's like to be somewhere. You know, we get uh, these great seats. Uh, we get up close these great moments in sports. We're at these incredible venues where the, the sometimes the, the electricity is amazing. And that often does not make it a good story because we're writing about stuff on the field or on the court or whatever. I, I, my, personally, I want to try to get more of that on the scene stuff in the story. You know, if I'm going somewhere, if I'm going to, you know, Cowboy Stadium, Jerry World, to write about Alabama, Michigan, one of the things I want to do is let people know what it's like to be there. So I think we're going to try to do something else. Yeah, college football is a perfect sport to lend itself to that. Right, oh yeah. College football is the best. I mean, the, the tailgating and the, you know, the, the bands and all that stuff that, you know, I, I often talked about, you know, what's your favorite sport? And to me, it depends a lot on, okay, am I watching it on TV or am I going to the event or whatever? If I'm going to the event, I don't think anything beats college football. Yeah, I mean, here in Buffalo, I mean, the 8,000 rowdy people that UB gets every week, I mean, it practically shuts the city <laughs> down. You know what I mean? It's, 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 yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can answer this any way you want, but I, 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 I feel like I have to ask you in some form. Okay. Do, you, do you feel like the controversy with Joe Poznanski's book and kind of the timing of it is going to affect the website at all? Uh, I don't. I don't. It's, you know, I, you know, I don't. I don't know that it's going to affect the website. I mean, I think you know. I, I my short answer on the book stuff is, is kind of this. You know, I've been friends with Joe for a long time. Um, I think when people read the book, well, I'll, I'll put it this way: um, I look forward to the time when people are reading the book and then reacting to it instead of the other way around. Right, and, and I think that um, you know when it comes out, people obviously will judge it however they want. But I think right now people have sort of preconceptions about what's in there and about what Joe's attitude was and all that sort of thing. And I just, you know, it, it comes out in like two weeks or so, and I just want that to be over. I'm sure Joe does too, and just have the book out there, let people read it, discuss it, and do that however they want. Um, as far as how it affects what we're doing, you know, I guess it could, but I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I think Joe has built up a tremendous amount of goodwill over many years as a sports writer who people have really enjoyed and loved. He's going to keep doing what he's doing. You know, he's a tough guy. Um, and he's, I think, proud of what he's done. And I, I just don't see that as affecting. You know, we're huge admirers of Mr. Poznanski's work, and he was kind enough to come on our sixth show. You know, which oh, is, really? Yeah, he was on our sixth show. And, I mean, that opened us up 
that gave us so much more credibility than we had probably earned six shows in. You know what I mean? And ever since then, we've always felt a certain gratitude uh, towards him. And, you know, through this whole thing, which we've kind of followed as best we can, it just our point of view is just that he didn't sign up for this. You know what I mean? He didn't. He had no way to predict the future. He didn't sign up for this. And I'm kind of on the same page as you where I hope people will put aside their feelings on the broader issue to read Joe's book fairly and judge it based on what it is Joe wrote. And one thing I will say, though, is that I don't think that there's any writer in the world who's better to better equipped to handle what was thrown on him, even though I guarantee he wishes every day it wasn't, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's a good guy and, and he's he's a strong guy. I think he's, he's holding up fine. You know, obviously he's in London now and, and I think he's going to be fine uh, no matter how people react to it or no matter how people feel about it. I think he's proud of what he's written. Um, like I know he is. And I think he looks forward to the book coming out and people discussing it and him being able to discuss, you know, how he wrote what he wrote and, and how he came to do it. And so, Three weeks, you know, we, we don't have to wait much longer. Yeah. One more thing, and we'll get you out of here. It's Tommy Tomlinson, uh, sure. writer from the Charlotte Observer. For 23 years, he's moved on to be a part of this really interesting new website, Sports on Earth, uh, which you can find at www.sportsonearth.com. And you can follow Tommy on Twitter, at Tommy Tomlinson. I guess I want to ask you to look ahead one year. And if I call you in one year, kind of what do you hope – the website has accomplished in that first year? Well, I, I hope we're all still employed. I <laughs> expect to be. Um, and I, I think, I think this is going to do well. I mean, I, you know, you never know with a startup and there's a certain amount of risk involved when you start any new project, but I think the people are really good. I like everybody who's involved and I, I I'm pretty confident it's going to do well. Um, a year from now, what I hope is, that we're, you know, solidly in the mix when people talk about where do you find great sports writing on the web, that we're one of the people that they talk about, along with Grantland, along with the stuff that ESPN.com does, along with the Yahoo guys, everybody else who's out there. Um, you know, uh, I want us to be in that mix, and I want us to be, you know, I'd love for us to be in the front of the back on that, you know, so that when, let's say, the Super Bowl happens, and you know Joe's there, I'm there, whoever we send out there, that people are waiting to see what we write about and waiting to see what we do and looking forward to not only how we cover those big events, but the things where we write feature stuff and, and maybe stuff you didn't know about and, and we surprise you a little bit. You know, I think there's, um, there's so much that still can be done and sport writing and all kinds of writing. You know, I, I, I think in sports writing, there's kind of been the natural advantage that there's always another game coming, and there's always something else to, to do some other event to attend. But there are bigger issues and bigger things to look at, too. And, of course, there are people to write about. And all these things ultimately are about are about people. I think there's a, a huge wealth of people to write about sports, some of whom everybody knows, some of whom nobody knows yet. We don't even know them yet. Um, but I want to find some of those people. And so I, I think a year from now, if people are waking up who are, who are interested in sports or even just interested in good writing 
and they want to see what the sports on earth do today, um, I'll be pretty happy. Tommy, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you doing this, and uh, we'd love to catch up with you again in the future, and uh, definitely maybe we can talk when you get back from that Alabama-Michigan game, and you can tell us a little bit about what it's like, and we'll have had a little bit more time with the website. We can talk a little bit more, but thank you so much for doing this today. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Steve. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, a special thank you to Tommy Tomlinson for making his Sportscasters debut today. Really looking forward to seeing the Sports on Earth website develop. Um, I've been reading a little bit of Poznanski's stuff from the Olympics, and you know what? I think I'm looking most forward to is Poznanski kind of putting this Penn State front stuff behind him and going back to being the Joe Poznanski that we've right, loved so yeah. much. You know, Brutal position for him to be I look in. forward to that. But for 5 on Fantasy today, we got a pretty interesting segment. This is what we're going to do. Uh, we picked out five players, or ten players total, five separate debates of players at the same position who are really close in terms of average draft position. Players that you realistically might have the option when right. you pick of drafting one or the other. And the other thing we did here is we didn't really tell each other about it, so we haven't been able to really research these players. So a lot of it's a gut reaction uh, at this point. But, I mean, again, things are early anyway, so I'm not sure how much research would come into play anyway. Right. So the idea is, okay, I have the seven pick – or one of them that we did talk about, but would probably affect the person with the second pick in the draft. Sure. Arian Foster is gone. You know you don't want to go quarterback. You know you want to go running back. And we're going to debate specifically Ray Rice or LaShawn McCoy. And we're not going to necessarily pick separate sides. We're just going to each give you our opinion why we would pick one or the other. Right. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. And we're going to start it off with a quarterback battle that Don picked out. And I don't know until right now, what it is. All right, here's a good one that I like. They're kind of separated a little bit by ADP. One right now is averaged around the 17th pick, the other one around the 31st pick, but they are 5 and 6, and they're kind of similar players. Uh, the number 5 average drafted quarterback, according to ESPN, is Cam Newton. The number 6 is Michael Vick. Very interesting. Do you agree with the order right off the top? Well, I'm it looking... is a 10-pick different, a 15-pick almost difference. Right. I think what they're saying then is that there's a drop-off after Newton. Sure. They're almost drawing the line in the ADP saying Tier 1, Tier 2. Or you could even say they're doing Tier 2 to Tier 3 in that Rodgers, Brady, and Breeze are the first tier, then Stafford and Newton the second tier, and then a drop-off to Vic, Eli, and Peyton. What's interesting about Stafford, and I think we talked a little bit about this last week, but he had an all-time great season last year. So really the only reason I think he doesn't fall into that top four maybe is uh, Can he do it how again? long he's done it. Right. right. But, I mean, if he does it again this year, then he's right there with those three guys. But, yeah, so my tier, if Stafford's alone on tier two maybe, then my tier three is Cam Newton and Vic, and they're probably alone on that tier. The reason I picked this one out is because maybe it's an easier decision for you than it is for me because if you agree well, with Well, I have a there. history of hating Vic. Well, right. But that doesn't really play into it because I wouldn't mind owning Vic. 
I'm going to just say I would definitely go with Newton in this case only because it's just fresher legs. Right. You know what I mean? I would if if I was if if I'm trying to break this tie in a draft room between Newton and Vic, I just see more upside with Newton. He's got fresher younger legs. Now, the flip side of that is sophomore slump. That's, he's only done it once and they don't have as much talent on that offense as Vic does. That's a bit of my thought. I never like guys after monster years, and Newton had one of the all-time best rookie years. Yeah, probably the best fantasy quarterback rookie season, probably. Vic might be a tiny bit underrated this year because he came off a bad year. Philadelphia, in general, had a bad year. They just year. never got going. The whole year. dream team yep. thing, and just it never worked out for them. So, I mean, if you had to ask me, and this isn't necessarily what we asked, but if you had to ask me, would I rather have Newton at 17 or Vic at 31, where he's being drafted? I would take Vic at 31 all, uh, every day. Right. I, Cam Newton, I think. Better value. A, You're saying Vic is better value at 31 than Newton is at 17. Right. But that said, if they both slip to around 30, which I don't expect Cam Newton to, I still might go Vic. I just like I like his team better in front of him. Well, you got to like, let's just start naming wide receivers, right? With Philadelphia, right away you have Macklin and Jackson. Yeah. With Carolina, you and have Sean McCoy, if you want to count him. Right. In Carolina, it's Steve LaFell Smith. and Steve Smith are the two yeah. wide receivers there. So I think there's a huge drop-off between where Jeremy Macklin, the number two receiver for Philadelphia, is going to be drafted as compared to where the number two receiver for Carolina would be drafted. And plus, like you said, McCoy is a much bigger threat out of the backfield than Stewart or D'Angelo Williams is. Yeah, so and they also have Mike Tolbert now. So maybe some of those maybe they try to preserve Newton a little bit and some of those short touchdown runs don't go to Newton. They go to someone like Mike Tolbert who that's kind of what he made a career doing in San Diego. Uh but for the purposes of this debate, third round or fourth round, first pick, you need a quarterback. Newton and Vic are the next two on your list. I'm I'm going to go Vic. I'm going to go Newton. Close though. Yeah. Closer than people think. Probably for me. All right. The second one we talked about right off the bat, we're going to go two running backs. And again, this is your, this is your choice to make at worst at number three. If Rogers goes at two, right. Ray Rice versus LaShawn McCoy. And we'll set it up this way. You're at the draft. You have the number two pick. Arian Foster has been selected. You're not interested in a quarterback. These are the two running backs you want to pick from Rice or McCoy. Where do you go, Don? Why? I, what, how do you separate these two guys? Because it's very close. It's it's really hard. And Ray Rice, I always feel, is a bit underused in Baltimore, as hard as that is to believe. It just seems like he doesn't get as much touches as he needs to. Uh, I might go look McCoy again because I trust the quarterback a little bit more. I trust the offense more. I don't know that I trust the defense more. So Ray might, Rice might have more just time on the field because Baltimore's defense is better. They're really close for a reason. I I would I think if I'm drafting, and this might be the coward's way out, if you do a KDS, a Kentucky Derby style draft where people you pick your draft slot in order, right, I, I like might that. pick the third and pick. just take the last guy left. Take the last guy left, get an earlier pick in the second round. Uh I'd be happy with any of those three guys. That's a cop out answer, but I guess again I would bunk tradition a little or bunk the the average draft position here and probably go McCoy. You know what? I'm going to go with McCoy too. And here's why I'm always looking for reasons to break ties. And I really do believe this is a tie. I think this is a dead heat between these two guys. The reason I would break the tie is because I would pick McCoy. The reason I do that is because I've had 
a track record as a fantasy player with McCoy. He's been <laughs> yeah. on my teams in the past, and I've had success with him on the team. I'm in a league where they do something I don't like, but I don't mind the uniqueness of it, and I like sometimes when leagues take risks to be unique. But I'm in a league where you draft rookies separately before the regular draft. And a few years ago, when LaShawn McCoy was a rookie, I was lucky enough to pick him in the rookie draft. How is draft order determined in that type of thing? Well, the way they do it is... They do the regular draft order first, and then the rookie draft is the opposite of the first round. Okay. So if you have the first like pick that. in the regular draft, you have the last pick in the rookie draft. It's a 12 team. How long league. can you keep that player? The first, okay, so you draft them, you have them the first year. You can't trade them unless it's for someone else's rookie. Okay. So rookies can only be traded for rookies that first year. Okay. Then the second year, you can keep them at no penalty other than losing a, your second pick in the rookie draft. Okay, so that's nothing, really. So it's nothing. And then the third year, you can keep them, but it's for average draft position. Okay. So that's the case with McCoy. I had him his first year. Last year, I got him and only had one pick in the rookie draft. And then this year, I'll probably keep him again, but it will cost me his average draft position, which is going to be round one. But that's hugely to my favor because he's going to be a top three pick. So I'm going to get good value there. Do you get to know where you pick first? You don't. So that's tough because if you end up with the first overall pick, that's the only way you could say it would be a bummer. But yeah, I like. There's still not that big of a difference between Foster and McCoy. No, probably not. So I'm a winner pretty much any pick, and I'm a huge winner if I get 12. Oh, absolutely. Because if I get 12, I get McCoy. I kind of like that. I might throw the wrinkle in though, where you could know your draft position first, but. I guess that would even give you more of an advantage if you got lucky in the rookie draft. But it's just the way those guys have done it, and because of it, I've had a lot of experience with McCoy, having him on my team the two years he's been in the league. And I I wouldn't mind having Rice, like I said, but you got to find a way to break this tie. And for me, it's just track record. Yeah, you've talked about I that. I have track record with McCoy, and I, I kind of enjoy him, and I like to watch him play. Yeah, you've talked about that in the past on this podcast for sure, probably a lot of times. If you got a tie, just pick a guy you like more. And maybe yeah, it's your team. It's not like you dislike Ray Rice. But no, I don't. But you've had LaShawn McCoy. You like to watch him, so why not take him? Yeah. All right, your wide receiver battle? Or no, our second running back battle. What's okay. up next? I haven't heard this one yet. Okay, you haven't. Well, we're, you better move on to your wide receiver one because my note like flew away from the fan. <laughs> so to keep this moving, okay, give me the wide receiver one. I haven't. Oh, heard. actually, I do remember we we discussed the, this other running back one. Oh, right, 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 right. Our, we're all over the place here. Yeah, sorry about that. Our next running back battle. This one's a little bit different because they are separated by a few spots here. Right. But we have number fifteen in. 15th ranked running back based on ADP and the 18th ranked running back based on ADP. They're separated by about 10 draft picks typically. And that's Michael Turner and Darren Sproles. And we should stress this is standard scoring, which would mean no PPR. Right. Right. Um, So let's take it both. Let's look at it from a non-PPR and a PPR perspective. Debating, let's say it's the third pick in the fourth round. You need a second running back, and you're trying to decide between Turner and and Sproles in a non-PPR. Let's start with that. Okay, I'm going to actually start with PPR. And the only reason I say that is because uh, Michael Turner, if you've played PPR in the past, is catches next to nothing. Yeah, very few. Maybe if he gets double digits in a year, that's that's good for him. The reason I'm going with PPR first is because I think that's a more obvious answer. Okay. Uh, I don't think it's much of a battle. I think everybody would take Darren Sproles. Right, in a, in a PPR. Year last year. Yeah, everyone's going to take Sproles. Last year. I think the more interesting battle would be 
in a non-PPR. And I think even though, again, I'm going to go against average draft position, I think I'd take Sproles in that scenario. I think he's just a way more – If Michael Turner is a funny guy because he had a, a really solid year last year. but Better than what you would think he had. Right. But he did have a long stretch between week 11 and week 17 where he didn't have a 100-yard game. And I think that just shows where there's a lot of miles on yeah, those tires. Absolutely. And when you get to week 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, and your highest total for the for those weeks is 76 yards rushing, that's a red flag. Also, his week 17 was huge. 172 yards and two TDs. But you're over by then. You're done by then, but his stats aren't. So his stats might look a little bit better because of that meaningless game. I mean, for Tampa Bay, they had a lousy season. That game was that game meant nothing to them. And Again, championship I, week, he was playing New Orleans, and he had 11 carries for 39 yards. That's a huge disappointment. Right. So I think what that just shows, my point by bringing that up, if I'm, like I said, if I'm looking at two players at the same time and I'm looking for a reason to pick one or the other, I'm scared about the miles on Turner's legs and the amount of carries that he's had over the years and that's why I would pick Sproles. And for me, Sproles is on my favorite team. Turner's on my least favorite team. Right. And again, it's my team. If I'm picking between these two guys, I want to pick the guy that I want to root for. And in this case, it's a blowout that I want to pick Sproles over Turner. Yeah, and a non-PPR, it does make the discussion tougher because if you look at Darren Sproles' numbers, he never his biggest rushing day was 88 yards, and that was against a really bad Indianapolis team. But he catches so many balls. And uh, another thing we should mention in a non-PPR, yeah, you don't get points for the catches, but you, you get usually get points for the yardage. Right. And obviously if he catches one of those and runs it into the end zone. Yeah, I mean, if you're in some weird league that doesn't give points for running back receiving yardage or whatever, then, then you probably then go you Turner. Turner. But since that's I've never heard of a league like that, Sproles I, I think is the case either way. And, again, that goes against – ESPN, the way these guys have been drafted. so Right, but for me, I'm going to go Sproles both times, and you're the same. Yep. All right, I have my wide receiver one if you want me to kick that position sure, off. Sure, go ahead. All right, really interesting one I thought here. Um, two guys, not very, very different in age. They play in the same division, and they're number seven and eight in ranking, 26 and 29 in average draft position. Okay. Two guys are Mike Wallace from the Steelers and A.J. Green from the Bengals. Wallace and Green both kind of emerged last season, uh, Green being a rookie and kind of yeah, developing a really good good um, chemistry with uh, Dalton, who's also a rookie, and Wallace kind of emerging from the Santonio Holmes right. shadow to be the clear-cut number one in Pittsburgh. So. Don, I ask you, you have the, oh, let's say, fifth pick in the third round. You don't have a wide receiver yet, and you've decided that Mike Wallace and A.J. Green are the two best guys on the board. Which way are you going to go? Oh, this is a tough one. Um, this I'm going to base this assuming on Mike Wallace being signed. Yes, we have to do that. Okay. I've had... We talked, in, or you talked with the last guy about how you just like to take guys that you've had a history with. And I did have AJ Green in a league last year. He kind of saved my season actually because I I acquired him as a throw-in basically in a trade. I made for Kenny Britt. So I mean, Good Kenny thing, Britt obviously got injured, injury, right. right? 
AJ Green ended up having a really nice season. The only thing that scares me about AJ Green, he's a fun guy to watch too. He makes circus catches. He is his ankles are so tiny, man. It's guy just looks like he's an injury waiting to happen. But he has no history of that, at least in a pro career. He got banged up a few times, but he, he always managed it seemed I don't think he missed any time last year. And I think if you look at their their breakdown, they missed from one last, game maybe against Baltimore. If you look at their breakdown from last year, it seems like Wallace kind of faded a bit. That he started out really good. I mean, eight catches week one, eight catches week two. But then if you look at his stretch between week nine and week, well, right to the end of the season from week nine on, he only had one game with more than five catches. Yeah, Wallace is a guy that's he's almost got to get deep. He's a yards per reception guy he's always going to be one of the league leaders in that he's kind of like uh a deshaun jackson with a better build i would probably go with aj green here again kind of going against the adp but barely i mean they're so they're close. real close which is why i like this one. I, I think aj green is good at getting up in the air i mean he's a guy that can make more like like you said mike wallace is a track star i think aj green's more of more of a receiver's receiver and uh like i said Banged up a little bit at times last year because he's a bit smaller, but I just like his talent. He's he's a really nice player. I love I, – you know what? I'm going to go with you, and that's kind of boring because it seems like we're kind of <laughs> going with each other. But I, I really like A.J. Green this year. Some people stay away from second-year players, the whole sophomore slump thing. Yeah, and they've that got two of them. quarterbacks people away. sophomore too. Right. But I just think there's still so much upside there. He had a fantastic rookie year, and I just think his second year, I just think it's going to be better. I think he's still got a lot of room to improve. I mean, he had some dud games in there. You know, Houston, five catches, 59 yards, no touchdown, week 14. Week 16, two catches for 25 yards against Arizona. I think he one thing he didn't have last year is there was a little bit of inconsistency from a rookie player still sure. learning in the league. You know, I mean, week 10 against Denver, he had you 10 catches, 124 yards, and a touchdown. That's... What's nice about him, though, 29 too, is points in a PPR. against the defenses he should beat, he beat them. Right. Uh, really, I mean, they play in a tough division with Pittsburgh and Baltimore, and he was pretty lousy in those games except for one game at Pittsburgh where he had 87 yards and a score. So that's a nice game. But he was kind of shut down by San Francisco. He was kind of shut down in the other Pittsburgh. Well, he scored in both Pittsburgh games, but he only had one catch. He was shut down in the Baltimore game. He was injured for the first one. In the last one, he had two catches. He was shut down in Arizona. Maybe he was covered by uh, Patrick Peterson or somebody. That, right. So yeah, I just he's got still room a lot of room to grow there. Right. Yeah, it's a, we say it at the same time, but it, I think it's just so true. And I think regardless of Wallace's situation, like signed or not, I think there's still going to be a little bit of bitterness there. You know, like I, I just I don't I can't see them making him happy just yet. And Pittsburgh still has offensive line troubles too. So if Wallace is a deep threat, I mean, Ben Roethlisberger is great at making time, but I mean, again, this is really close. It's a coin flip. Both are excellent receivers. I'd be happy to have either as my number one. Maybe I'd want someone a little bit better than that, but if I'm drafting one of them as my one, then I probably have two stud running backs and I'm happy to get either of them. Right. All right. Last one. My wide receiver battle is probably a common one out there in the blogosphere and in the, uh, podcast world but two guys from the same team one again emerged last year the other has got a has a career of being solid and that's victor cruz and hakeem nicks this is a really good one victor cruz right now is averaging uh, draft spot is 31.8 
Hakeem Nicks is 32.0. So just dead point, heat, basically. Yeah, dead heat with Victor Cruz a slight. They're both tiny basically bit ahead. the first pick in the fourth round. That's their average, right? Right. So their numbers next year or last year were fairly. Actually, I mean, I don't think they were all that close. Uh, Cruz I th- might have been the top receiver in the league, if I'm not mistaken. Or if it wasn't Jordy Nelson. was one of those guys that kind of had a crazy uh, crazy jump last year. He was fourth. But that was with putting up zero points in week one and two, or one point in week two. So he kind of emerged as it went on and he got better and yeah, better. Yeah, Cruz had a monster year. So Cruz versus – and I think Nix is a little banged up. Like he might have had offseason surgery. I, we might be different this time. I'm going to go Nix here. I like Nix better than Cruz. Cruz is a guy who I want to see him do it a second time. I'm not quite giving him the benefit of the doubt that I gave yeah. A.J. Green. Because I don't know – I mean, Cruz is a guy who was undrafted, right? He doesn't have the pedigree that Green has. You know, he wasn't a real top pick. He's a guy we kind of all learned about because of hard knocks. Because the year that the Jets were on hard knocks, they played the Giants in the preseason, and Cruz had three touchdowns in that game. And that's kind of where I first learned about him. And then it took him a year, and last year he emerged. But I think that Nick's... Nick's broke his foot in minicamp. But he supposedly will be ready for week one. So, And I never worry about a break. Because the break just heals. Right. So his drop in value, his if you can call it that, like maybe he'd be around more like number five or so. But, I mean, you have to draft. This isn't like a holdout where you draft them assuming they're going to sign. You can't assume his foot wasn't broken. So you're drafting him dealing with that. The one thing, I don't know why, but I guess I saw a lot of Victor Cruz last year, maybe just the Red Zone Network. He did score a ton. The one thing I'll say about Victor Cruz is he was the beneficiary <laughs> Of a lot of great, a lot of catches and then really long runs. So I don't know right. if Eli was it. putting him in great spots. I don't know if Victor Cruz is running great routes, but he got lost basically. And I don't think he's going to be able to get lost as much this year. People are going to know he's out there. Maybe Nix doesn't demand as much coverage because of his broken foot. These are probably two guys I don't end up with on too many of my teams because where you're drafting them, you're probably making them your number one receiver. You know, it's interesting. The third guy that maybe we can throw into this who's right behind them is Julio, Julio Jones. Jones. I might go there over either of them. Just I feel it's a tiny bit safe. I shouldn't even say that, though. Roddy White's there, too. I mean, there's Right. That, uh, that's a, he's in a similar situation. The nice thing about Nixon Cruz, I'll say over Roddy White and Julio Jones, and I don't have this stat in front of me, but I'm assuming that Atlanta runs the ball better. So I think the Giants are going to throw more. And Eli is a little bit of a gunslinger, so I expect them to throw the ball around. Boy, that's tough. All three of those guys are, are really tough. I'm I'm going to stick with Knicks. I'm, I think I probably do too. But I guess at that position, I'm hoping A.J. Green is still available. That's right. a cop-out answer. But A.J. Green's a clear-cut number one. He's a young guy with a ton of skills. Uh, shouldn't have any injury, uh, lingering injuries from last year. And the drop-off after that is guys like Brandon Marshall, Jordy Nelson, Steve Smith. So that 9-10-11 is probably a tier of its own where you're going to have to make that decision unless you think Brandon Marshall. Brandon Marshall's a PPR monster too, so I'm rambling now. The receivers this is are fun. close. Let's do this again next week. We'll pick out five more next week. Then maybe ADPs will change a little bit. Yeah, this was really cool. So... All right. 
That's it for Five on Fantasy today. I think we agreed on all of them. Nope. Cam Newton was different. Right. Newton and Vic was different. All right. Let's see what we come up with for next week. And you oh, want, real, real. Yeah. You wanted to say something for email? Yeah. I and to I'll throw, throw it out. Up. If there's any specific w- debates that you want us to have, sure. hit us up on email at sportscasters.gmail.com or find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Okay. The, the only question I want to throw out for the email is I am building a league this year. I think we discussed it. And right now it's a fairly standard league. It's just I wanted to run a, a league of my own. I have never done that before. And I just wanted to throw out there very generically, very general question. What sets your league apart? Like, what can you do to make your league memorable? Uh, I'm in two other pay leagues and a few other free leagues. And they're not – the one league is very different. And the other one's kind of vanilla. I just like it because my friends are in it. But I want to know what I can do to make my league different if that has to do with gameplay type things. If it has – like, my one thought was – well, just I mean, throw it out there. Like we're in a league that's all play. Yes, if you know what all play you, you is, play means, every team every, every week. week. So right. that sets that league apart. Totally, different. that's the lo- that's the all play league. There's different strategies, different reasons to want to be in that league. Right. I'm in a league with a rookie draft. Right. Makes and that league also has IDP. Makes that league different. Right. It doesn't have to be anything. You're in kind of a standard league. Right. The the other league I'm in is more standard. So really, give me ideas. Give me things just to make it fun. Give me things to make uh. It- the competitive if you aspect were, different. I think the perfect question is: If you were about to start a fantasy league, what rule would you put in that would help your league step step up, up away from every other standard league? Right, because there's nothing wrong with standard leagues. No, but you want something to set your league apart a little bit, and that's I'm throwing it out there, guys. So somebody uh, hit us up: sportscasters at gmail dot com or on Twitter at sports underscore casters. We'll be right back with Pablo S. Tori from Sports Illustrated and sportsillustrated.com. dot com. Our next guest is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of Harvard University. At Harvard, he was the executive editor of the only breakfast table daily in Cambridge, the Harvard Crimson. In 2007, he was honored for his work by the Associated Collegiate Press and the American Society of Newspaper Editors for writing the sports story of the year. After college, he was hired by Sports Illustrated to be a writer and reporter for the magazine at SI.com. In 2010, he won two Boxing Writers Association of America awards for feature writing. He's making his third appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the ultra-talented Pablo Estori. What's up, Pablo? Hey, thanks for having me, and as always, for that wonderful recitation of facts my mom is proud of. So, very exciting day for you making your debut on the Sports Reporters. Tell us what it was like. It was really fun. It was really fun. I had uh, known I was going to do it for a little while. And had uh, been preparing mentally to uh, try and trade barbs, as it were, with uh, with some veteran journalists who I really respect. And uh, it was just a really great experience. Uh, I had never been on air, I think, at ESPN. So this is my first time, and I went out to Bristol, and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. What was your parting shot? It was about Mike Vick, actually. I'm glad you asked. Because I've been I've been catching internet heat, as it were. <laughs> uh, I I did a parting shot on Mike Vick and how it's only been five years since he was the worst person in the sports universe, and now he has this whole line of sports apparel with Team Vick T-shirts. Now the president is giving him advice. He doesn't want him to slide. He wants him to slide more, I should say. And uh, I pointed out how this is 
a very short turnaround time for somebody we were just actively, uh, you know, criticizing for for murdering and torturing dogs. And uh, it went up in the Twitterverse, and Mike Vick fans have been none too pleased with me, which I can <laughs> I can understand from one perspective, I suppose. Right, but I mean. They, you know, Mike Vick fans. I mean, it's it's a fair point, though. You know what I mean? Like, even if they're on the other side of it, I, you know, it's one of those things where you almost have to respect the other side because of the nature, the seriousness of what Mike Vick went down for. Yeah, and then that's kind of what my point was. And we can go off on a tangent for as long as you'd like on this, but but a lot of people's argument seems to be that you know he did his time, he went to prison, he's a new man, and all that. And it's true. He did his debt to society. He came out and said all the right things, you know, has done a lot of charity work. But my point is, was really that if we really care about dogs, you know, if we really cared that he personally murdered dogs and, you know, had this so-called rape stand on his property and electrocution of dogs took place and hanging dogs, if all of that stuff is true, I feel like the uh, the expiration date on on that kind of a PR disaster should maybe be longer than five years, just from a purely, you know, m- moral uh, perspective. I just feel like it's, it's too soon maybe to, uh, to re-lionize him and anoint him, this guy whose merchandise should be, we should be wearing. Well, you know, some people's expo- expiration dates, as you say, can be really short. I mean, the Ray Lewis expiration date was seconds. I mean, yeah, know, it was a little bit of a different scenario. He was actually... But that's a case I thought about. I mean, that's a case I thought about where, you know, one of the, one of the other points I was trying to make in this minute-long parting shot was, was about, you know, just the power that pro athletes have to make us forget. You know, as soon as they show contrition, and I'm not saying it's not genuine contrition, but it seems like we, because they are really good at sports, that we give them a far longer leash in terms of uh, uh, in terms of our our, 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 source, our social memory. You know, we, we are willing to forget that they did all of these bad things. And not that they should be defined by that for the rest of their lives, but it does seem like there's an inequity there where I doubt, I very severely doubt that a, a normal average citizen who ran and operated a dogfighting ring would be signing another $100 million contract and would be endorsing... <laughs> products at Models. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. You know, we've all been watching, just to kind of break this tangent a little bit, we've all been watching yeah. uh, sports reporters for a long time. Now that you've done it, can you tell us one thing that you learned today that you didn't know before about the show as someone who, like us, just watched it for all these years? Well, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I mean, the <laughs> you use a teleprompter for the parting shot, and it was uh, it was harder than I thought. It was, uh, I, I mean, I think I came out of it okay, but that act, I mean, you just, the long, the short version of it is, I have so much, every time I do TV in any respect, I have so much more respect for the people who do it daily. So John Saunders is the host of the Sports Reporters, and just the ease with, with which he flew through some of the stuff, I mean, it was it was pretty staggering. And and all those guys, I was on with, uh, with Mike Lupica and Brian Burwell. They were the other panelists, and all of those guys, you know, the level of comfort they have with the teleprompter and just being on set like that is is, is pretty staggering to me. And uh, and yeah, it, it's it's harder. I think TV is harder than it looks. If that's something that, 
that uh, you didn't already think. <laughs> well, one of the big reasons we called you today is because your trilogy, so to speak, of Jeremy Lin articles in Sports Illustrated is now complete. You had the back-to-back uh, cover stories, and we had you on then, and now this third one, which was called I, I love the uh, I love the title in the magazine, The Return to Sanity. I thought that that was perfect. <laughs> and you worked on this with Lee Jenkins. And before we get into the meat and bones of the article itself, you, you either know or don't know that Lee is somewhat of a god here. He's been on the show nine times. He's kind of like our main man. And I just wonder what what uh, what how did the collaboration work? Like, how yeah. did you guys come together on this? And when I read the story, it's not like the Lee stuff is in red and the Pablo stuff is in green. Right. It's all right. just kind of one thing. Tell us a little bit about how the reporting worked and how you guys kind of came together on this. Yeah, that's a great question. So Lee and I are are good friends. I would like to say maybe he would dispute that characterization, but he's with <laughs> he's definitely one of the guys I'm closest with on the magazine staff. We have talked about writing and 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 how and the craft I guess of writing without being too kind of highfalutin about it for for hours on the phone and he's a guy who I've gone to advi- gone to for advice and he's a guy who I, I I think is the best NBA writer in the world right now um, so anyway I, I Lee uh, that's my background with Lee but when the story came up it was not clear what kind of a story SI wanted to do and I, all I knew from the beginning was that I needed to talk to Jeremy because I had this pre-existing relationship with him. I covered him, as as we've talked about before on uh, on your show. You know, since since college, really, um, I'd written one thing in college about him, and then I finally met him while he was a senior at Harvard, and, and did a SI feature about him then, and kept in touch. And then obviously we have this trilogy. But I knew that I needed to to talk to him, and so. As soon as I, I did an interview with him and uh, wrote a story for SI.com, you know, his exclusive first comments about all of this stuff going from the Knicks to the Rockets. And at that point, I think the editors basically got together and said it'd be worthwhile to have a double byline on this story. And that's something I had to be talking about with Lee. Because Lee, I think, you know, I think we were thinking about basically giving Lee the magazine story, letting me do the web story, and just seeing how it worked, because as we all know, I've I've exhausted about, you know, two right. decently long features on the guy already, and obviously he's going from a different, different place, Lee's the NBA guy, it's it's his province, as it were. But, uh, but we ended up deciding to collaborate. I had a lot of good stuff from Jeremy. I told him that we were going to do a magazine story also, and that I wanted to talk to him again for that. And and he, and he was and he was down, and so at that point, it became a process of splitting up reporting assignments and then splitting up the writing. And so the reporting he did, he Lee went to Houston. He was there in Texas physically for I think three or four days, doing what he always does, digging up all sorts of facts and details, and, and really getting the TikTok from Houston's perspective. And I was talking to Jeremy. I talked to him for about another hour. Uh, a lot of stuff we didn't end up using actually uh, that I that I still have. Uh, we talked. To, I talked to him for about an hour and talked to some other people for the piece. And from there, we kind of talked about a structure. And I provided some parts of the story, but Lee was. I mean, it, it's Lee. Lee got final say on the on the story writing wise, and it's really his in terms of putting together the piece. You know, I contributed 
you know, the lead and some other details, but by and large, you know, I let him run and do as, as he pleased. I mean, he's the senior writer, the guy who I who I think, <laughs> I, I, as much as it was interesting for me to work with him, I also liked seeing the inside of how he put together a story. And it was really fascinating from that perspective because I got to talk with him pretty much through every step of the way, if not paragraph by paragraph and section by section going back and forth on a couple of things. And I got to play sort of first editor a little bit, which I think we both enjoyed. And so it was actually a really fun experience in the end. You know, that beginning, the the lead, as you said, the very beginning part of the story, is that something that you had kind of known for a long time, the the dating option <laughs> thing? Like, is that something you kind of knew about since college and, you know, just kind of worked really fit in here? Or is that something you recently found out? Or how did that make its way into the story? Yeah, I knew that anecdote since the beginning of this year. And I basically knew that as soon as Jeremy's free agent stuff was going to settle, that I was going to use it in some way. It was just too perfect. I mean, the idea of being at a date auction and having nobody bid on him was was too rich to, to not uh, to sort of let slide. And so I knew that in whatever I wrote about the free agent stuff that that was going to be high up in the story and it ended up being in in Lee in my, my mind I think in our mind the the most fitting introduction to a story about a guy whose value was being debated up until the very last second of his career with the Knicks um but yeah I was sitting on, on that for a while and I was hoping to god as the whole insanity thing unfolded and as every reporter jumped all over for him and his family and his past and his friends and his college life and all that, that that wasn't going to emerge, and thankfully it did not. Let's talk about the basketball part of this a little bit. And the first thing I want to know, because personally I was really, really surprised that the Knicks didn't match the offer. Were you surprised, or did you expect – when you saw what the offer was, did you expect them to back away? I thought the Knicks were going to get him. From from the beginning, I didn't waver on that until the Raymond Felton thing. Kind of like what, you know, not that I'm just stealing from from Jeremy Lin here, but that's what Jeremy Lin's own thought was. That until Felton was he was you know reading things online and and he saw that Felton was headed to the Knicks. Until then, I thought I thought this was all you know smoke, and and that's because I saw firsthand what Jeremy Lin meant to Madison Square Garden at every level of that organization, from the stock price to the merchandise to the excitement around the the arena that and the Knicks that I hadn't seen as a resident of New York in a very long time if not ever in terms of just the sheer unbridled enthusiasm about a regular season let alone the playoffs I thought that they were it was a lock and I I think I tweeted as much that I would be shocked absolutely shocked if Jeremy didn't end up back with the Knicks Um, but yeah up until the end I mean the Felton thing that was the first real signal that, oh my God, Jim Dolan actually is for real about this. And if he's not for real about this, he's at least going to make this very miserable for for Jeremy Lin if he were to come back. Now that Jason Kidd and Felton were both on, right. on the team as well as him. But no, I was as shocked as anybody. You know, one thing that during the, let's say, the, the meat of Lin sanity last year that was a question mark was, how was Jeremy Lin going to fit in? as the stars of the Knicks team who were absent at the start of it 
kind of came back as Carmelo Anthony returned to the lineup and Stoudemire returned to the lineup. And we never got to see that play out fully because yeah. of his injury. Let's put that aside for a second and talk about how he fits in on his new team. Do you think that playing point guard for the Rockets is actually a better fit for the future of Jeremy Lin's career than if he would have stayed in New York? I think so. I think so. And I, I was talking to his high school coach about this the other day, and, you know, Jeremy Lin was at his best in New York when he was playing with the quote-unquote scrubs, you know, when he was playing with the second team because everyone else was hurt. And for better and for worse, that's what he has in Houston, is he has a bunch of guys who are really young. I think they might be the youngest team in the league or one of the youngest teams in the league. And they're guys who, by and large, don't have a lot of experience. I think Chandler Parsons is is like their, is, is the veteran on that, on that lineup. So I think Jeremy Lin, everybody knows at this point, or they should know that he, he needs the ball in his hands to flourish. He can do amazing, amazing things when you trust him with an offense. And he wasn't going to get that in New York. I think it didn't matter to him. I think he wanted to come back to New York regardless. Um, he loved the fans. He loved he loved so much about New York, despite the fact that he was such a bad fit for New York from the celebrity kind of oppressiveness perspective. But you're right. I think Houston, in the end, is going to be a place where he can actually develop as a basketball player, something that he didn't really get to focus on in New York at all. And quite honestly, it's a testament to how good he was that he was as good as he was with all of you know those distractions and, and really as much of a fishbowl as you can imagine outside of LeBron James. Yeah, you guys paint a picture in the story of him being really uncomfortable with the uh, paparazzi and some of the things that go with being the kind of star he was in New York. Do you think that this Houston thing, as you mentioned, in a really diverse city, uh, not the paparazzi presence, do you think he's going to be able to just relax a little bit more and focus on basketball? And maybe the blessing here is that this three-year deal, if it would have played out in New York, we see all the potential landmines there. In Houston, there's less, and three years from now, we might be talking about a bigger six- or seven-year deal that he ends his career with that he wouldn't have gotten had he stayed in New York. I think New York is just a... I mean, I don't want to make too much... There, there's a line you can cross where you talk about New York like it's this, you know, it, it's it's Mecca, you know? And some people do call it the Mecca of basketball, but where people sort of make too much about it being a special place. New York cannot be exaggerated, however, in the sense that the media here is unlike anywhere else. You have the tabloids, you have all every cable news station is stationed here. The media is it's is this incredibly incredibly voracious ecosystem that can just consume people and, and destroy them. And you know, in baseball when you talk about players maybe not wanting to play for the Yankees because of the spotlight in the media there is a degree of truth to that. There just isn't that experience anywhere else and certainly not in Houston. So from that perspective, it's a great thing for him. I think that he's going to a place where he's not going to have, you know, he's, he can go to meals and it's not going to be, he can go to meals outside of a hotel. You know, in New York, as he told me, he was eating out of the W downtown off the room service menu for pretty much his entire time here. He said he didn't see Times Square until April. 
which is insane. If you've ever been to New York and you're a tourist, let alone a resident, and you don't even know where Times Square is until you know four months in, that's that's crazy. And and that I think is going to be a big change in Houston and one that I think he'll he'll come to enjoy. You know, you talked a lot about, and we've talked a lot about this in the past, about the economic impact that he made. Uh, uh, one thing was really felt here in Buffalo was the MSG cable. <laughs> yeah, you know, with Time Warner, because in Buffalo, Sabres games are on MSG. So people were, you know, flipping out here and switching to DirecTV. And obviously, Jeremy Lin helped put an end to that. What kind of impact can he have in terms of off-the-court things in Houston? And is a lot of people are falling back on this. You know, Yao Ming was there, so they already had this built-in fan base of uh, people from China, and Lin will just be the kind of continuation of that. Are we, are we overstating that a little bit, or, or, or do you kind of agree with that line of thinking? I think the Rockets... I think the Rockets, number one, the reason they got Jeremy was because they needed a point guard. Um and they, they'll say that, and they're expected to say that, that it's a basketball decision. But I really do think, you know, after losing Goran Dragic and losing Kyle Lowry, they didn't have anybody. And their owner, you know, basically said to Daryl Morey, you need to be aggressive and get us somebody who can play the point. Because that is, that is we do not have any bodies who can do that right now. So that's why I think they got Jeremy Lin. But I do also understand and, and think that the Rockets were uniquely situated to understand exactly what his value is. Maybe only second to the Knicks in terms of being an organization that grasps that. The Knicks got it because they lived it for the insanity era and and the Rockets because they had Yao. And and I don't think you know, I don't think we're making too much of it if we're saying that Jeremy Lin fits into a a mole that the Rockets are very familiar with. You know, as we reported in the story, when Yao was playing for Houston, other teammates on the Rockets had deals with companies in China. And the Rockets became immensely popular. And one of the things that's happened, interestingly enough, since Yao basically created a bridge to China, was that the NBA, which is now broadcast over there and really flourishing, has has diversified in terms of fan base. There, as we say in the story, there are Lakers fans, there are Thunder fans, all of that. And I do think that it's fair to say that the Rockets are looking at Jeremy as a as the best foothold possible to get the Rockets back to the top of that dog pile where they can compete not only as a basketball team, but really as a brand that can overshadow the other teams that are very good in the NBA. The Sportscaster is finishing up here with uh, Pablo Torre, who you can find on Twitter at SI, Pablo Torre. Um, kind of last thing, well, two, two things, both small. Second to last thing, do you think that Houston will be a place where Jeremy Lin will take his play on the court to a next level? Was this a good basketball decision for Jeremy Lin and the Rockets? Yes, totally. And I don't think we've seen the best of Jeremy Lin. And I would... Put that down. Put that down in any sort of, uh, you know. Put put it in uh, in ink. You know. I don't think that I'm totally confident in saying that. That is, we have not seen the best of him. The reality is, he only played for a couple of months in New York, and he is. He was talking to me about his workout routine, and we talk about oh how to you know how we make such a big deal when 
players, you know, have a new workout regimen when they look come back and they look like a new guy. Jeremy has improved so drastically year over year, and he has he has a, he has a trainer for like every part of his body, and he is religious in t- terms of his workout routine, where it's scheduled down to the hour so many times a week. Where I don't know if there's a player who could physically spend more t- time working on his game than him, and if hard work is any indication of success to come, then I think he's going to be he's he's going to flourish. Last thing, kind of off topic, but we've been asking kind of just everybody this as kind of an unofficial poll of curiosity. Is the Olympics – Is uh, you didn't go over for SI, but they sent plenty of people. Yeah. And NBC has spent tons of money and resources on this. But just as a sports fan, where does the Olympics rate for you? Is this something you're going to get into in the next couple of weeks or – you know, where, where does Olympics fall on your sports calendar? Important, yeah. not important, yeah. That, that's a good question. Um, as a sports fan, I do get into it. I think it's, I'm always about, you know, I'm interested in sports not because necessarily of the sports themselves, because of the stories. And NBC, maybe to a fault, does that so well in terms of packaging and and telling these stories. And one of the big criticisms, obviously, about the games this year has been they're not showing all of these things live. And you're right. It's not It's because it's not for sports fans as much as it is for the entire country who otherwise don't give a crap about sports. And honestly, there's a real part of me that sympathizes with that. I think it's really fascinating to, to sort of dip a leg in this pool, whether it's archery, badminton, uh, you know. Handball. Figure skating. Team handball is amazing. Yeah. You know, all of these things are really, really entertaining. And I enjoy it for what it is. I'm not saying that I would go out and, and, and pay money to watch a team handball league. Well, if it was, if you got some NBA players, I probably would. But I would be, I would be lying if I said that I didn't get temporarily obsessed with all this stuff. I think the Olympics are, or anything, you know, underrated by a lot of sports fans because it's not one of the big three sports, and you're missing out on a lot of awesome, awesome, you know, feature stories and also just these games, which are honestly, insofar as they're two week or week long or not even a week, but a several day long events, that's more than enough time to win your attention and kind of get you invested in this stuff. So, no, I drink the Kool Aid whenever it comes around. Awesome. All right. Again, Pablo Torre, you can find on Twitter at SI Pablo Torre. Thanks so much for doing this, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right. I want to thank Pablo Torre for making his third appearance on the show. I want to thank our other guest today, Tommy Tomlinson. And Jonah Carey for making this a special episode. And I want to mention it again. Don mentioned it towards the end of three things, but in case you missed it, we have a really fantastic edition of our Football Nation podcast this week. I'd love for you to check it out if you haven't yet. You can find it at www.footballnation.com. You can also find it on iTunes by searching Football Nation or by searching the Sportscasters. And our guest this week is a guy named Rob Gehring, who is a ex- uh, senior producer for NFL Films and the director of of Hard Knocks, and we did a really cool interview with Rob about Hard Knocks and about what people can expect from this year's version of the show and 
how they find storylines, and it'd just be great if you'd check it out, www.footballnation.com. You can also follow Football Nation at Fball Nation on Twitter. Other stuff to mention, don't forget you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Twitter, we are at sports underscore casters. Gmail, and you got some homework this week, sportscasters at gmail.com. Fantasy folks, Don's asking for some ideas on how he can make his fantasy football league unique. Send those questions again to, or those answers to the sportscasters at gmail.com or Twitter at sports underscore casters. Also, if you want to... If you listen to the Five on Fantasy this week, you know we did uh, the kind of head-to-head matchups between people with similar ADPs. So if you have any out there that you want to hear our opinion on, send that in as well. Uh, you can find our blog, thesportscasters.blogspot.com or thesportscasters.tumblr.com. And our website where you can find all this information is www.sports-casters.com. All right, last piece of business for today, like always, is pick four. Good week for us last week. We want to combine six and two. Um, both just missed out on our bold predictions. I went three and one at the U.S. over France and women's soccer. Won that four to two. My pitcher last week was uh, Jake PV of the White Sox, who beat the Twins eight to two. And I laid twenty points and still won in men's basketball as U.S. beat France ninety-eight to seventy-one. My only loss was I thought that the Braves would get Zach Greinke. He ended up going to the Angels. Don's 3-1. He also had U.S. minus 20 over France, 98-71. His winning pitcher was Weaver, 7th straight win over the Royals, 11-6. And Brazil over Egypt in men's soccer, a lot closer than he would have thought. That one was 3-2. So only loss was that the Sabres stayed quiet, didn't make a big move. Yeah, they signed Pat Collada, but not a big far move. from a big move. Yeah. And uh, Semin, who would have qualified as a big move, Signed with Carolina. Yeah, there's your hockey news. (laughs) Yeah, that was it for the week. Yep. All right, our game of the week this week, we're going to stick with the Olympics, and we went a little bit different here. The 200-meter individual medley, which will be raced on Thursday at 319 Eastern Standard Time. So whatever time that is there. Right, and the special thing about this race is that it's the second of two head-to-head matchups between Phelps Phelps and Lochte. Lochte. Right. Right, and what we're going to do here uh, is we're going to either – take Phelps, Lochte, or the field to win gold. Uh, I'm going to be un-American and go with the field. I'm going to take Phelps. I kind of went into the Olympics thinking that Phelps and Lochte would split their two races, and I'm going to stick with that train of thought and figure that since Lochte won one already, Phelps will even him up and get the second one. It's one of his last races ever in the Olympics, and as I think as Phelps gets closer to the end of this journey, it's going to start treating these races a little bit more seriously. Uh, so, I hope you're right. I don't think I've ever been more wanting to be wrong about one of my picks. Uh, it, it's nice that Phelps today got his record for most medals by anyone Yeah, the pressure ever. of that is over. But it'd be nice to see him get a gold in some one of the individual races that he swims in instead of kind of backing into that medal. I mean, he did win a gold Two golds this year or one? One in the he's relay? Well, one gold so One far. in the relay. So it'd be yeah. nice to see him get an individual one he's this got, year, too. I think he's got four medals now. One gold, two bronze, or two silver and one bronze. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, my winning pitcher this week, I'm going to go with Ben Sheets, who <laughs> is 3-0, 0.50, oh, real impressive ERA. Yeah, he's been great for the Braves since he signed there. And they are playing the Marlins, and uh, who are sending out an equally impressive pitcher, who's 1-1 one one with a 1.15 
in LeBlanc, and that game is Wednesday at 7-10. Yep, I got the same game. Take Sheets over LeBlanc. My host choice this week, the one thing, I was looking for anything to pick from the Olympics, but maybe not something. It's, man, it's hard to look at those Olympic schedules. There's just so much going on, and a it's lot of busy. them don't really name names. It's just like this team or this event. So I actually stayed with baseball, kind of boring, but I'm going to take the Reds over the Padres. Hopefully that's a, an easy win for me. That game is Thursday. I'm taking Thursday's game at 1235 Eastern. All right. I did find an Olympic sport to piggyback, and from what I've heard, the U.S. women's basketball team is quite impressive, and maybe relative to their, to their sport. They're the more dominant team sure. than the U.S. men's team. They play Turkey on Wednesday, August 1st at 5.15 p.m. Eastern time. You can watch it live on the NBC Sports Network, and I'm going to take Team USA to win that one. My bold prediction this week, I'm going to go with Venus Williams, who is the older of the Venus. The elder of the two. She is uh, do, doing well in these singles and will also be competing in the doubles. I am going to take Venus to win two medals, just two medals, not gold, silver, bronze, whatever. I'm going to have her to take two medals, which probably would have been a long shot at the beginning of the The Olympics. harder one for you there is going to be the individual. Like I would almost yeah, if they don't medal. I'd be in, shocked if they didn't medal in doubles. Yeah, that would be tough. But so yeah, the individual she's got to make it a few more rounds still. All right, I struggled coming up with a bold prediction this week, and was thinking about the Hall of Fame game, which is Sunday. It's the first chance to watch two NFL teams play each other this weekend. It's awesome, and it was kind of interesting to hear Saints interim coach Joe Vitt talk about his approach to the game, and basically what he said is that they're going to treat it not like a first preseason game. But treat it like they treat the annual black versus gold scrimmage, with the, they're not going to have this year. So basically, that means that you're going to see even less time from starters than you would normal in a first preseason right. game, which is usually pretty low. So my poll prediction this week is that Drew Brees will find a way to throw a TD pass in the Hall of Fame game. I'm going to guess he only has one shot at it. If he gets up to three, I'm going to take a loss. Okay. So it's made it even more bold. Right. I'm going to say either his first drive or second will result in a touchdown. I'd be shocked if he gets a third. But if for some reason, like, the Saints score, then force a turnover real quick, and then maybe another. Right, right. Whatever. If for whatever reason he gets to a third drive, it's a loss. Sounds good. So Drew Brees will get a touchdown pass in one of two or one drives that he has this weekend. If he gets to three, I'm out. So that's going to do it for the show today. I want to thank our guests one more time, Jonah Carey, Tommy Tomlinson, and Pablo Estori. Don't forget to check out our Football Nation podcast, www.footballnation.com, for a really interesting interview with the director of Hard Knocks, Dining Cue the Hip. All right. <laughs>